Hi, everyone. Welcome to Office Hours. If you're watching on YouTube, you can find out more about what we do at officehours.global. Our first hour is general discussion and our second hour is general discussion. Saturday, <laughs> we're only two hours of general discussion. So good day to ask questions, uh, uh, lots of them. Uh, so go ahead and uh, throw those questions in and uh, let's go ahead and jump into those questions. Robert, what do we have? Uh, thank you, Alex. Uh, we begin with John Preto. It appears that Verizon is pulling the plug on blue jeans. Thoughts? Good, Mitchell. Well, it's like the movie uh, Highlander. There can only be one, one top one. And uh, Zoom has certainly won that battle. Um, I think it was a, a valiant effort on the part of Verizon. But, uh, you know, it's funny. These corporate uh, folks, they get in a boardroom and they say, wow, something's really happening over there. Let's do that. Let's throw some money at it and see how it works. But uh, they're way too late to the game. Go, John. $400 million is what they paid to acquire Blue Jeans. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think that the challenge really is, is that with any of the, with any piece of software, but, you know, BlueJeans is, is a part of that, is the, the problem is keeping the people who made it great. You know, there was a lot of things in BlueJeans that were pretty innovative when they first came out. They, they did a lot of things that, that did make a difference and it was used in a lot of companies I worked with. Um, so I got to see a fair bit of it. Um, at some point, you know, the hard part is, is it's, it's just hard to keep people going in the same direction. And the, the companies oftentimes get, they get um, basically distracted by all the things they're trying, you know, first of all, they're, they are who they are. And then they try to be like everybody else. <laughs> so blue jeans kind of added all this other stuff, trying to, trying to keep up with the Joneses. And, and I think that they, you know, the talent that they had at the very beginning had been long gone by the time Verizon bought them. And, you know, that's, that's the other challenges you always have, you know, if you miss, misappropriate, uh, high quality talent, uh, basically what they do is leave because <laughs> you know, they don't need to be there. They're not there for a paycheck. They're there to do something. And so I think that that was really the challenge for Blue Jeans is they had some, they had a pretty talented crew when they got off the ground, but by the time you know Verizon had bought them, most of those folks were somewhere else now. And so I think that they just then there was no movement, you know. And 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 when they needed it, when when uh, COVID hit, they didn't have anybody there that was really innovating. It was just a lot of business managers, and they just they just tried to ride through it. And uh, yeah, I don't think it worked very well for them. Next question. From Paul Wallace, Austin, Texas, After Hours has a growing community of ham radio operators. How can amateur radio etiquette and technology help facilitate communication in After Hours and on OH special events? Good, Courtney. Uh, Roger, your question, Paul. I'll uh, attempt to answer now. CQ, CQ, CQ. Uh, I'm not sure how it would help on special events. It would maybe keep uh, uh, the the radio etiquette may keep people from talking over each other. Here we have that under control through a host and uh, calling for next question and, and calling through Makana, lining up the people that will uh, speak and the order in which they are speak. So it's all carefully handled here. Maybe in after hours, uh, it might be useful. Uh, to observe, uh, you know, over and break if someone is talking too long or someone has something important they want to say to be able to break in without uh, interrupting, uh, you know, being being too rude to interrupt. But uh, other than that, we really don't need it because, you know, uh, we, we can step on each other audio-wise, but at least we don't, uh, you know, wipe them out by keying our transmitters. <laughs> Go ahead, um, Mitchell. Courtney is exactly right. In fact, if I could, I'd put a thousand watt linear on my uh, panelist position here so that I can blast everywhere. But uh, the interesting thing about, uh, well, the cool thing about ham radio operators, it is a bit of a brotherhood. 
and a sisterhood. And um, they require that you have a very deep understanding of the technology and the systems in place in order to, to attain your licenses. So in that regard, I think it's a good idea because everybody that's on as a ham radio operator knows what they're dealing with technically and also the, the proper etiquette that's going on. So we could borrow from that, I think, to apply that to anything. Hey, go ahead, Laura. Yeah, um, I think we do pull a lot from this as our crew is on Unity and um, we use a lot of the um, call and response type stuff over Unity. And I spend a lot more time in the crew than I do here on the panel. And it's a, uh, it does keep us kind of disciplined and learning that discipline was something when I started with the crew I had to actually do. Yeah, I don't know if it would cross over very well. I mean, I grew up in ham radio. I don't know if it would be. I mean, I think it's 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 good and it has its own culture. But I think that um, the after hours culture, I, I don't know. When I jump on, it's fine. <laughs> like I don't I don't find. But I, you know, I. Um, but uh, we'll we'll yeah, we'd have to keep thinking about it. Next question from Simon Ray, Midlands, United Kingdom. Are there any websites you found that are particularly good at explaining technical or scientific principles in simple terms? And is there anything we might learn from them for our own presentations? I, I think that I would probably look at YouTube. I don't think I would look at necessarily um, no, websites to do that anymore. But but I think YouTube has a lot of um, pretty strong, you know, uh, you know, Veritasium, uh, Tom Scott, um, the, there are, um, the other, I mean, the, the quintessential ones to, to, to look at is, is of course, and I've talked about it many times is connections. And that was not, that's not new. That's 1975. <laughs> so it's like solid, almost 50 years old. Um, and it is the, still the best scientific education ever made and not no close second. Um, so uh, go ahead, Mitchell. Yeah, I grew up with uh, Mr. Wizard, if you remember him, explained everything uh, in great detail and made it simple. And then moving on, uh, Cosmos with uh, the great Carl Sagan, with all those uh, planets and galaxies ticking and purring in the cosmos. Um, I, I think that that's very instructional and uh, very entertaining at the same time. And when you can do that with a website or a, uh, a YouTube, makes it that much better. Go ahead, Courtney. Yeah, I kind of like... Uh Joe Scott answers with Joe. It's a YouTube channel, and he's he's kind of got a wry sense of humor, and he does about a fifteen to twenty minute um, video piece, well researched, well edited, and it covers a variety of topics from uh, uh, astronomy to uh, physics to anthropology to you know anything legend, you know mythology, all that kind of stuff. Topics are covered in depth. Uh, through history. And so it's very interesting. Uh, and he pre presents it kind of with a, a humorous edge to it. So I kind of like, I'd vote for answers with Joe. Uh, yeah, go ahead. Uh, Mitchell? Yeah, I just wanted to pop another name in there. Neil deGrasse Tyson. He just does a wonderful way about him explaining very scientific or um, stuff in the cosmos. Yeah, other ones that I, I have, I, I've subscribed to a lot of these on YouTube. Um, Branch Education is pretty good. So they, they have lots of how tech works and you can see a lot of great animations and so on and so forth as they break them. Freya Homer, when it comes to, she, uh, they do, um, uh, you know, mostly like how Bezier's work and stuff like that. And they're, they're, theirs is pretty good. Um, the also three blue, one brown for math, I think is a, is a really good one. Um, so those are some of the things that I would, I would take a look at. There's just, you know, um, uh, I'm trying, micro, of course. 
So, um, so those are those are the ones that I would probably take a look at um, to, to to think about how to do it. As far as what we can learn, um, you know, I think that the main thing is I I think that the for scientific principles, I think that the short videos are pretty effective. And I think that the one you want to think about is reference, you know, what we want to think about is, is how to do it in a lot of different ways. So what you have is you want to have text that's reference. You might want to have long form that's audio that you can listen to it and have people philosophically talking about it and everything else, but you can walk around and do something. And then, and then video illustrating things should be relatively short. I mean, I have to admit, even so I like some long form. If I look at a YouTube video over eight minutes, I'm like, wow, that's a commitment. <laughs> like, like, like that's better be really good. And uh, it rarely fills the space well if it's a more than eight minutes. It sometimes does, but it's pretty rare. So we, we should probably keep them short. Go ahead, Courtney. Yeah, a couple of more I just thought of uh, technology connections, uh, which is this young kid uh, who does a really great job of explaining technology. And he goes into a lot of, you know, television and appliances and thermostats and stuff you have around your house and does deep dives on them and explains exactly how they all work and demonstrates exactly how they all work. That's good. If you're into chemistry and physics, um, there's a guy, there's a YouTube channel called Tech Ingredients, kind of close to technology connections, but Tech Ingredients and this guy has a work, a beautifully built workshop somewhere in the uh, Upper East Coast. And uh, he does all kinds of crazy stuff from building rocket engines to, uh, you know, building giant refrigeration units and covers exactly how they work. And a lot of chemical stuff, building smoke bombs and uh, not explosive stuff. They're not too dangerous of stuff, but a lot of chemical stuff. And it gives all the ingredients and uh, how to concoct them. So it's uh, it's quite <laughs> interesting very... if you're into chemistry, chemistry and things that uh, burn brightly and and uh, explode. I mean, and uh, give off smoke. You know, it's a great a great channel. Yeah, it looks like that looks like a really fun channel. I'm definitely gonna check it out. Uh, next question from Douglas Carmichael. Visual effects workers at Marvel Studios have filed for a union election with IATSE. Do you think we'll see broad union recognition in VFX at the level that we have for actors and writers? Go ahead, Courtney. Well, I kind of hope so, because they've, they've been uh, so overworked and downtrodden for all these years. There's never been a union for visual effects workers. And there's some of the, they have some of the longest hours because they're always under the gun to finish something because they have a deadline because a movie's coming out and they have to get it rendered in time. And um, so they end up working hugely long hours for, you know, a reduction in pay. They put on lots of people. The uh, work is also cyclical, you know, so there'll be a one big uh, Marvel movie coming out and everybody in town works and then that movie's released and then nobody, everybody's out of a job for a while until the next one comes along. So uh, maybe it'll spread. Marvel uh, is a, Marvel Studios, a pretty big uh, house as far as visual effects goes. If they could get Disney involved, you know, that would be interesting because they have a lot of animators over there. I don't know if they're members of Leanne. It's on, uh, I'm not sure what animation guild is, but since they're all doing, they're sitting in a big warehouse over in Glendale. I don't know if they're in the union. Go ahead, Mitchell. Yeah, unfortunately, Hollywood is littered with the remains of many VFX houses that uh, came and went. Uh, where you know they sh their lights shine brightly for a short time, and then they went on. And usually, what happens in the VFX category is that uh, they take on a job and it overwhelms them. 
or the director makes so many changes that their margins go away or they didn't properly uh, uh, get that job based on what it actually costs, that it's forced to do it below their cost uh, ability just to get recognition. So uh, the, the point of them getting uh, involved with the union is good because it'll, it adds some continuity uh, to how everybody negotiates instead of it just being a free-for-all every time a job comes along. Yeah, the the interesting thing about VFX firms is I really feel like the fun, the fun left when uh, rotoscoping was outsourced. It's a funny thing. You, um, I, I, so the way you bid things in visual effects, you need some things that are hard to define and sometimes they're really inexpensive and sometimes they're more expensive and you, you bid them all as the more expensive version. It creates fat, you know, it creates fat in your VFX budget. And, um, and rotoscoping was a huge pile of fat, <laughs> like, you know, that, that was sitting in your, in your thing because some, you pay, some, you know, you, you charge, let's say $10,000 a, a shot for the rotoscoping, but some, it rarely costs $10,000 a shot for the rotoscoping. It would be more like 2000 or, or, or it'd be 1500 or whatever. And the visual effects firms themselves thought, well, I could, I can get a little bit more out of that fat by sending it over to India and, and, uh, and the Philippines. And so they started outsourcing it. At first, it was a disaster. I had friends that were doing all the training and they were just, it just didn't really work. Um, and then their Indian counterparts, you know, caught up. It took years to get good enough to do American films. And then they got really good and then they got better. <laughs> like, you know, at, at, it, at it, you know, and because they were just doing so much of it and they were doing it for so many different people. And, um, and so what happened though is that all of that, you know, the producers immediately, you know, they, they figured this out pretty quickly and they just started bypassing it all. So it wasn't the visual effects firms getting the extra margin. It was the, produ you know, the production was, was finding the extra margin and just doing it themselves. And it took all the margin out of it. Like it just, it just sucked off, you know, cause the, the problem with the rest of the visual effects for films is they're really hard. They're, they're hard to do and you, they're hard to know how bad it's going to be or how hard it's going to be. And I really feel like the grind against the metal happened when we got rid of, when rotoscoping went and they, they, it wasn't an extra margin for the visual effects firms. It was just something that was taken away from them. They suddenly didn't have any, any, any buffer. And it's been that way, I think, I mean, cause it, it was, I mean, it was hard. Now, I, I have to admit, I was in a, I, I was in IATSE uh, Local 16 at, at ILM. And, um, and so, so ILM was, has been um, organized for, you know, since the 90s. Um, and so, so it, was, it was very odd for me because we were limited to 45 hours a week and I didn't know what to do with myself. Like, I literally didn't know what, I didn't know how to operate in life at 45 hours. I mean, I learned, I learned how to square, not square dance, I learned how to do I don't know, some dance. Um, yeah, uh, swing. I learned how to do swing, and I and I and I wandered all over San Francisco, and I did, I did all these things trying to figure it out. And then I just went back to work and started doing freelance. <laughs> I started moonlighting because I couldn't because I was like I can't I can't take forty five hours a week. Uh, anyway, go ahead, Courtney. Well, that limit to forty five hours a week is not the union. That's the production company not wanting to pay overtime. Is what that is. But uh, well, you're not limited. You're not when, limited when I worked, the number of hours. I can tell work. you when I worked more than that, I got a talking to. From the union, so <laughs> so, but well, so, well, that's why I say because they because then they were billed as overtime hours. No, I, what I got in trouble for is not not putting them on my card. Um, oh, I see. Oh, so I, I just <laughs> it's even worse. Yeah, don't yeah, put them on your upset. card. Yeah, they're then the union's going to talk to you. Yeah, they want <laughs> the, the, you to, to bill all the hours you work. Yeah, yeah I didn't. I, I was, you know, I was. I I I just loved doing what I was doing, and what happened was I would all the things that. That, I, that my supervisor asked for was all billable. And all the things I wanted to add to the shot that I enjoyed was not billable because I felt like yeah. it was my, 
this is my shot. You know, I'm working on Star Wars, you know? And so, so, I, so mm-hmm. I would sit there and I'd get caught at eight o'clock at night working on some weird little ship in the background to, to, because I didn't like the way it moved or something like that. And not, what I learned very quickly is my shots would get finaled with or without, whether I thought that they were done or not. <laughs> so that's when I started working extra hours is because I was like, this is going to be Star Wars. And, uh, and, I, and I, things were getting finaled that I, I, I didn't feel like they were done. <laughs> so, so, there, so I, so I made, was trying to make sure that they got done the way I wanted I them so, so that I could be proud of my shots. You know, like that was, that's all I cared about. Yeah, I, I did that a lot on Dexter with the graphics. I re, read them. To make them look better, but they, um, I was going to say, the isn't rotoscoping, isn't a lot of stuff uh, gone AI taken over and done a better job now than farming it out? Yeah. And is um, is AI going to take away a lot of uh, what would be union background work, you know, um, creative work from the visual effects? Community? I don't know. The, the creative work is pretty hard. Like I think it's going to take a long time for AI to take over that. So far, my understanding of the rotoscoping is it's gotten a lot easier, but it's not. It's, the problem with rotoscoping and match moving and other things like that is you're either a hundred percent right or you're zero percent right. You know, to do to do it, you have to be you have to nail it perfectly, or you have to do it. You have to do it again. And so the problem, you know, and and the um, the, the infamous uh, some of it did get through, like in Star Wars, the we we called it the bantha the bantha pudu shot. Is there's a shot where Jar Jar steps in something outside of Moss Eisley. And uh, if you watch it closely, I mean, I got to see it in dailies every day. That thing just slides a little bit. It just, you know, it slides along the ground because the CG Pudu is, is, um, is, is just not quite tracking. And that's the kind of problem you get into. And that was a minor one and that made it into a major film. But there's a lot of um, match moving and rotoscoping really hard to do that way. And so the tools have gotten really good at making it easier for someone to, you know, the, the, there's a lot of automation in the tools, but when it comes down to getting every little hair and all the little bits and pieces, there's somebody that has to work with that tool to get it to work. It, you can't just say this is the background and this is the foreground. The AI doesn't isn't that good yet, and so um, it, it's not good. At, you know, it, it still takes a human, to my knowledge. I mean, unless they've gotten really good in the last year or two. You know, I still send I still send out Roto. So camera tracking and match moving eliminated my job completely from the commercial world. So you know, I used to do commercials, and once they got once there was a plug in an Avid where they could track the screen, all the screens that were in the in the in the uh, mm-hmm. in the commercial, they laid them all in and post. I never had to work on set anymore. Well, all my the, jobs just disappeared. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I mean, that's what uh, you know. The, the um, uh, that's why it's our industry is always going to be. I mean, no matter where you are, if you're watching this and you're thinking of doing this, it's always moving. Like you're, you know, whatever you were doing, you know, a couple of years ago was is always going to be keep on changing because, you know, you either see people that evolve and keep evolving or you, or they're not here anymore. Cause it's just, it, it, the, the technology keeps on moving forward, um, to, to make that happen. And, but I think that some of the creative stuff will be challenged, but I, I think that a lot of the things that we do are very hard to do with the AI in its current state. Will AI eventually do some of that stuff? I think so. I think that people are going to be able to tell great stories that entertain people a lot with just AI in the next couple of years. You know, like I, I think that's going to happen. But at the fine tuning and level and revision and everything else that comes with major films, I think that's going to take time, you know, to do this. Um, as far as the VFX, by the way, I don't think that IATSE is 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 organizing all the actual VFX workers i think that they are it's a lot of the ancillary people around the vfx workers um that's my understanding of this of this contract so they 
it's a good press release, but for my, when we dug into it a little deeper, a couple of my friends were thinking about it. Um, uh, I don't think that they're actually getting the artists um, yet. So, um, but this is the first step towards that. Um, I, you know, the, the challenge really is, is that um, it's, it's easier to do with Marvel Studios because Marvel's trying to do all that stuff internally. It's harder to do with a small VFX firm because they'll just die. You know, like if, if they're the only ones organized, it has to, you have to organize the big ones first. So I think that IOTC is probably taking the right direction as far as how they, how they do this, because otherwise um, you, you suddenly become non-competitive and, and that's going to, that's always the challenge. Um, next question. Paul Wallace from Austin, Texas writes, I am intrigued by the idea of office hours becoming a major force in trade show conference event coverage, but why just cover a few tech shows? Why and why wait? Good, Mitchell. Uh, Paul, I'm not sure what your hurry is. Uh, we're doing what we do best, which is the iterative process of uh, learning as we do each one of these shows. So I guess we're sort of an alpha beta cat category in terms of if you were to think of it as software and uh, like uh, the Seagraph showed, a lot of improvements, a lot of areas, and we learn something every time we do it. And I guess we're ready to go uh, full-on uh, trade show business. Uh, that could be a separate thing all, to, all, to, all into itself. Good, Laura. Unlike the Daily Show, our coverage of these trade shows is a lift. I mean, we have crew that is upside down. We change what we have as far as crew. And I think that being selective with an all-volunteer crew is very helpful and also a very wise solution. Yeah, I agree. I, yeah, I think that there's um, a lot of it is just pacing. We just we have a certain number of people that are interested in doing this right now, and we don't want to start, you know. And, and it's a as as Laura said, it's a big lift, and we're still figuring it out. So we're doing it, and then there's like you know. We're, we're licking our wounds and figuring out what happened and and what worked and what didn't work and everything else and then and then getting a little time in between to think about it. Um, I do think that we could do it I, as a business. I don't. I still don't think that as a pure business covering co conferences would be a good business. You know, like I don't think it would. You know, I think that. Um, so, and I'm pretty, you know, I, I, I look for businesses <laughs> so to do like, I, I mean, I, if I thought it was going to be a good business, I'd do it, but I don't think it is. Um, I think that the way we're covering it, especially is something that is way over the top from, for anybody else doing it, but it would be really expensive if we weren't volunteering to do it because we, because it made a difference for us and because we were enjoying it and because we were learning something. So I don't, I don't, I don't see a business model here that would be sustainable. Um, you could do a basic version of what we do, but then that wouldn't be any fun. <laughs> so, and so anyway, um, but but I think that um, but I think that it is an incredible service to our members. I think it's a it's a real service to the world, and I think we learn a lot about production. So what we're learning about when we do these is. We're I I know I learn a lot about production when we do these. So I'm figuring out you know I, you know I'm go in and out of production. And for me, these are a way to keep sharp, you know, like how do I, you know, you know, I'm slowly building this really ultimate rig, you know, so like between now, like we have a pretty good rig set up that we, that we figured out there. And one of the things I'm going to be working on is all the rigging for the wireless, all of the um, cabling. So I'm going to recable everything and I'm going to, I'm going to have cables made, you know, those custom cables that are made at just the right length. Um, so that they all kind of build into that, into that process. 
Um, and so, uh, you know, and, and then we're going to kind of figure out the array of where we put wireless and all the other things. Um, and so that's, those are the kind of things that we're um, going to be working on to really take it to the next level. Uh, and, and we're barely getting started. Like what we've done so far is good. Um, but um, I'm, my goal is really to get, and again, it's, I look at it as a community effort. You know, I get to meet Robert <laughs> and and uh, Cassie and and Raj and and um, and and Pete. I got to see you know, got to work with Peter. Um, and so we have all these folks that are coming in uh, that I get to meet, um, that we get to see. You know, they get to work together. They get to meet each other. And the IBC team is is. Uh, um, I was going to go to IBC. Unfortunately, I have a show that got stuck in the middle of it. Um, but the uh, but you know I. I think that it's a great socialization for us to have people be able, that are in the region or willing to go into the region kind of work with each other. So as a team building process, as a learning process, especially when we dump what we learned back into the system, I think it's really valuable for our organization. And I think, but the lift is heavy. You know, it's, it's not just the people, you know, I'm pulling all kinds of favors and strings and, and making deals and everything else to get us the equipment that we need um, and, and trying to figure out like, how do we get, you know, you know, a lot of the equipment that we have there is not ours, you know, so Electrosonic, you know, gives us uh, the wireless, LiveView is, is lending us the backpack, um, you know, we got the Teradex, the, you know, and, and so we don't even own all that equipment, you know, and so we're very you know, appreciative you know, of, of, of those, of the support that we get um, for, for that process. And then, so I think that, you know, there may be somewhere in the future where we do more of these. Um, I think that, you know, right now we're trying to go at a pace of about an average of about one every six weeks. So um, that's just so you know, like that's the pace I feel like is sustainable. Um, and uh, so we have um, IBC coming up, uh, that team, Richard's managing that team. Uh, we have New York in, and which is not, you know, only six weeks later, we have New York um, there. And then a little longer than six weeks, we have, um, we may try to put something in the, into the November, December, but right now we have CES, which I think we'll probably try to go to um, uh, for CES. And then we have NAM, and then we have, um, and by the way, it was, it was outlined to me that AES is right after NAB uh, this year. So we may try to cover both of those. Um, I thought it was, for some reason, I thought it was a different month. But the the two of them are together, so we may still try to cover that together. The um, uh, maybe <laughs> anyway. So uh, and then um, uh, and then we have at Nam, which has gotten moved back to a sane a sane time, um, in like I think February, and then NAB comes after that. So so we we have kind of a pace of things that we're working on, and I think every time we're getting a little bit better and a little bit more refined. Um, you know, and I think that we use what we've gotten on the last one to sell the next one. Like, oh, so like, for instance, we have, uh, we'll most likely get, I, I now have the internet for New York. I just don't have the, the table yet. <laughs> so I'm working on the, I had the, I had the table for Seagraph. Drexel had given us the table for in their booth, but I couldn't get the internet. Now I have the internet already committed uh, for um, for New York, but I don't have a table to put it on. So We'll slowly get this worked out. Um, anyway, so so the um, um, but I think that I I I I am really excited about what we're doing there because I do think it makes a difference. I think that you know as we get better at that, and we hope that other people look at what we're doing and go, oh, that's a good idea. And I think that the people that should pay for this eventually is the organization themselves. You know, the the the, the problem we have to get over is that all organizations feel like if, if we not all, but a lot of organizations feel, and this is very backwards that if we show video from the place, people won't come. 
Like they won't come to the event if we show video. And I'm kind of like, oh, you're crazy. Like, like I tell them flat out, like that's crazy talk. <laughs> I said that in a meeting like two days ago. Um, I was like, it, it is when you show video, people want to go. Like they, they see it. They're not going to get the same experience of being there. It's like looking at a steak, <laughs> like, you know, or, or, or something really good. Like they, they want the thing. They don't want it. It's not like they, you know, so, so I think that, um, uh, I think that organi- the organizations putting these on could pay for these. And then maybe it's a business model that we could that we could do. But as a news organization, we could not make this a business model. As a service to an org- to a, a company, we could probably, as the, as the organizer. You know, and I used to do these. I mean, uh, I used to do coverage. We used to do a lot of stuff for Salesforce and we would we would cover their events with cameras and that was just part of what our crew did. So, so organizations could do this. People organizing their own thing could build, you know, video coverage and that might make sense. But I think that it would have to be that, uh, you'd be selling it to the, the, the organ, the, 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 uh, the conference organizer is, is who would pay for that. And maybe, maybe we'll get there. Um, but I think the problem is that I want to, the other thing is that what I really like is that it's a training op and we're able to bring people in. I don't think, I don't, uh, you know, I don't think Robert, Robert doesn't do a ton of camera work, you know, and, and he did a great job, you know, and, and it, and, and the thing is, is that, is that the, um, you know, the thing is, is that's what I love. And, 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 and Robert even told me, he's like, I don't do a ton of, <laughs> do a lot of this. And I was just like, go for it. Like, let's do this. And, and I love the idea that we can, we can take on roles that we don't normally take on. Um, and we, and we can take on the things that we're not as comfortable with and still just learn how to do it. And the best way to learn is to do it, you know? And so, um, and I think that, and I think that, you know, it's, it, you, you just, it, what it takes is the commitment and the focus to just jump into it and, and work with it. And that's what everybody of the team last week did. You know, they just, you know, people were, I was putting them in positions that they hadn't done before, um, uh, or a lot of them and they just crushed it. And that's, and, and I, and I love learning that way. And I love teaching that way. It's just throw people into the deep end and just keep on telling them, move your left arm more or you'll drown. <laughs> so, so anyway, so, so anyway, I think that it's going to be, um, uh, we'll keep on doing it, but we're not going to try to increase the pace because we just don't have enough people. And I'm, this isn't my full-time job. Like if, if it was, if it was my full-time job, I'd do it every, every week. Like I would just tell people that we're doing it and we get a, a team together and we just do it all the time. But, but I still have to pay the bills. Next question. Simon Ray, Midlands, United Kingdom. What are the most common accessibility issues you find on websites that have at least attempted to be accessible? Go ahead, Laura. I'm going to pull up this graphic. This is from the um, WebAIMS 1 million website, 1 million homepage survey. And in my um, experience, this is absolutely true. You can see they've done it like every year since 2019 and things are getting better. 83.6% of websites have low contrast text, but then you get into the actual like screen reader issues, the missing alternative text. 58.2% of major homepages have missing alternative text from images, empty links, missing form input labels, empty buttons and missing missing document languages and that the 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 bottom three the bottom four or five of those there really will mess with your screen reader and your technology i have put this link into the chat i believe it's been sent out to the audience as well next question 
from Douglas Carmichael. Would there be any modern mobile app that is similar or as frictionless as the Nextel push to talk feature of old? Probably not. I mean, I, I, we, the closest thing would probably be Unity when we get it all set up, but it's not nearly as frictionless as Nextel was. Uh, go ahead, Courtney. And there's, I looked this, I did some research for walkie-talkie apps on phones, uh, which was similar how Nextel kind of worked. Uh, I found this was the most popular Zello, but it's uh, it's pretty expensive. It's six dollars and eighty cents uh, per month per subscriber. So, uh, and, and it sets up and it does a lot of the things kind of like they used to do uh, with the Nextel phones. Uh, for businesses that need to have a group of people that can communicate with each other in a push-to-talk way on their on an app on their phone. So if that's what you're looking for, look for look at Zello, and maybe it'll do the, the trick for you. Sorry, I got lost in my pages here. Um, next question. Simon Ray from Midlands, UK. Would a tripod on wheels be sufficient to smoothly follow you around the trade show floors or would a full steady cam be needed? Go ahead, Courtney. Well, I don't know about a full steady cam, but there's certainly some lighter weight uh, gimbal cams. The problem uh, being that uh, we're transmitting, getting that transmitter onto it. Uh, maybe the new uh, DJI uh, 4, what is it? Uh, that um, uh, is a great camera and gimbal combo that has a transmit DJI transmitter built into it would be great. Uh, that could be our next acquisition, huh, Alex? <laughs> That's a big acquisition. I've looked at it. I've thought, oh, that'd be a great acquisition. We, we, I think we'd have to do a fundraiser for that one. <laughs> we'll sell cookies. <laughs> we'll sell, sell, sell Pixacore cookies to get that one. But as yeah. far as, as, as wheels go, most of the wheel spreaders that you, I have some out there, the, the diameter of the wheels are only about three inches or four inches at most. Uh, and it depends on the trade show. Some trade shows, you know, have different carpets, uh, you know, carpeted somewhere, somewhere not carpeted. They have cable covers that uh, go across aisles. And so you'd have to go up and over those. So it may not be very smooth rolling around. You may have to pick it up and carry it over a couple of uh, thresholds between different carpet, carpet layers. A lot of booths like to put extra padding on their carpets so that their uh, booth hosts uh, aren't worn out by the end of the day by standing on the concrete. And uh, so, you know, it'd be a little bit problematic. Uh, a Steadicam would be easier, but a, a way to set the, you could have somebody with a rolling tripod follow the Steadicam or the gimbal person around and give them a place to hang it uh, when we're, uh, once they reach, reach their uh, location, uh, so they can take the weight off their shoulders. But that's one way. Yeah, the, the one that I've, I have thought of that people do use, but I think it might be a little over the top, but I might still do it anyway, is Segway. So, so we've we've seen people use segways. They they attach the Steadicam to the st segway, or they or they stand on it, and and so you get Steadicam arms sitting on top of the segway. Um, and most of the times, I think that the they have it not attached, but they have it in the Steadicam operator on a segway. But I think that that would be, you know, of course, biffing it in the segway would be not a great thing. So, um, so I think that, that would be the only challenge. But the but I have seen that used in film production, and it's worked, worked pretty well. But if we do it, we'd probably build some kind of cart with a really big wheels that we could just move around, you know, and then it and then it kind of moves through that process. But um, or or some kind of wheel system. And I am thinking about that because I was trying to figure out how we would navigate through those areas with that with a little with a little bit more smoothness. 
um, in that in that process. So so we're, we're we are thinking about that about what it would take right now. What we're really focused on is more just cutting cutting around. So cutting to something and not having to um, see us take it off. We I do what I don't want to lose is walking through it. I think people really enjoyed the walking through the com- you know, the conference. I, I think that there's something about it that tells you you're there. So what we did at Cinegear is we just kept on appearing in different places. And I feel like the feedback we got from Cinegear was, hey, it's really fun to walk through it and just feel what's going on. And I we didn't end up using the really wide angle lens that that I that I got for for um for Seagraph, but we'll use it in the future. It's like a 14 millimeter. So it really just kind of gives you this, this really open space of, of what, what's going on. And so I think having cameras like that would be, you know, and really getting to see it would be a lot of fun. Go ahead, Robert. Uh, while we're on this tangent, I'd, I'd be a little concerned about an ultra wide lens because then your B camera, which I was, uh, would have a challenge staying out of your shot, trying to get to the, uh, you know, yeah. to see the elements inside each booth. I think that what we would do is we would try, I was thinking about that. Um, and I think that the the interesting thing is, is I think if we think about the framing, I know it sounds crazy, but we may frame it just so, and, and it might be something we get good at where we kind of start in front of the booth and then swing like this a little bit. So you're still seeing the booth, but you're seeing a lot of background. One thing we weren't, we're not paying attention to a lot right now is we're just trying to survive. But there's this artwork that I think we could kind of build, you know, in a frame where we we know we're going to come into this booth and then we're going to kind of, we just get into the habit of swinging to the side so that the so that, that our, our, our close-up camera can swing into it. And um, and I think that there's kind of a dozy to do that that we we can figure out there that allows it. But I do think that the really wide lens gives you the sense of being there. And I think that combined with, uh, um, yeah, combined with, I mean, eventually what what I'm going to want to do is, is try to stream uh, 180, um, you know, a uh, spherical 180, so that so that you can see, you know, where you can put on VR goggles and see where we're at. But that will be a different camera because uh, you. You don't want to move it. <laughs> People don't want to move it. Yeah, go ahead, Mitchell. I was thinking with the Sony cameras you were using, can't you engage the image stabilization to get get uh, almost a steady cam like shot? Mm, kind of. <laughs> it's still, it's not. It's still not. not a lot lighter. Replacement. Yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah. I, I, light isn't the only thing I'm worried about. So yeah, but I, but I think I, I mean I think that we do. I think that there is this little mini studio in a kind of more tank like. I'm just experimenting experimenting with all of these different formats, you know, of, of how we move around through the, through the booths. Um, and I think that I do think like the rig that we had, um, the, the rig that we just had, I think I can lighten it a little bit by not using the Scorpio, using something smaller, like a, like a mix pre 10 or something like that. And so have a smaller version of that. Um, and then have a, so you'd have a smaller version that doesn't, it isn't, ours is set up so that it's capable of the two mics, but it's also capable of um, ambisonic and everything else. So you have an HDR rig that it just does HDR or that we set it up for that, that process. But if we decide we want to do HDR 5.1, um, then we need, need that heavier rig. And then we just have to decide if we're going to build another rig like that. I mean, if I have to look at how this last one, I haven't had time to look at it on SDR. I wasn't, you know, I, I think I was a little concerned. I, I'm, I've been concerned about the tone mapping from HDR to SDR so far um, inside of YouTube, if I if I knew that that was going to work well, if I felt like that that we're getting what we want out of that, then I'd probably move to just doing HDR. You know, like I think that they're we're, we're really close to that. That isn't even a very stressful thing for us to do anymore. Go ahead, Courtney. 
a couple of things. Isn't isn't HDR more problematic in a situation like a trade show where you don't have control over the lighting? You know, you'll have bright lights in some booths that are going to be shining and it's actually over and way better. Dark areas, really. It's actually, yeah, HDR is way better because we can just show all of it. Like <laughs> we can just see it, and if and, you know, and then the it it we don't have to worry about the. Um, we don't have to worry about it as much. The bright highlights are are represented and there's tons of data in between and it doesn't blow out. So HDR is actually more, if the tone mapping works well, HDR is actually far more um, forgiving than SDR. Because SDR as long as, every, as long as everybody can decode it on the, on the client side. Well, no, it's it's, it's more of a, a how, how is YouTube tone mapping that SDR back to SDR? Because YouTube's doing that. So they're they're doing it. So we're all getting SDR with HDR mapped into the tone mapped into the. Well, HDR. the HDR it comes in as HDR and it's displayed as HDR, but if you have an SDR, then it's doing a it's doing a lookup table, a lot, and it's going from down. HDR to SDR. And I I have to work with I think we have to work with YouTube to figure out the the um to make sure that that transform is going to be um it, it has to mirror what we're doing well, you know, and and that's something that we still have to work on. So. And the other the other thing I wanted to say is maybe maybe have the person who's carrying the uh, live view. It, do you have four inputs on it now? Yep. Uh, just take a one, either a GoPro or one of the new uh, um, DJI action cameras that has an HDMI out, convert it to SDI, and put it on the head. Uh, you know, cap horn version and a wide angle with the image stabilization turned on, so that when they're walking. From one place to the other, you don't have to worry about losing the uh, links between the Teradex, and it's directly piped into the uh, live view, so you'll always have that to switch to. Switch to that, and then that guy, as he's walking the live view from one location to the next, can have a wide-angle view as if you're walking through the show itself. Uh, meanwhile, the uh, cameras could go ahead. And, I think we should put a full-on make... stabilizer over top of their head and have this, this <laughs> like, like a, a gimbal. Yeah, yeah, a gimbal one of those, cra- so. like the. Like it just goes up the side of there. It comes off the backpack and just goes kind up of a like West a Cam collar. ball. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Transformers. <laughs> yeah, exactly. All right, next question. Hajma Gazar from Cape Town, South Africa, choosing a new webcam between the 360 and Osbot. Which option can the panel suggest? Uh, I finally have a Tiny 2 arriving uh, later today, hopefully, if, if it doesn't get lost by... Um, Amazon. So we'll take a look at it and uh, probably be able to do a comparison of it. I, I do feel like it's time to figure this out. I finally broke down and said, okay, well, it's time to, to buy one and find out whether it's as good as we think it is. The Insta360 I love. I mean, I think that I have one right here. This is the, the little, I have four of these little guys. Um, love this. The only problem with it is it doesn't have a, um, doesn't have any way to program to it. So it doesn't see, you know, we don't have any API um, access to it. And so, so I, if we, if we, I'm looking at the Obspot as a possible replacement for it, if I don't, if we don't see it by probably September, we'll probably start doing something else. <laughs> so, so the, uh, uh, or if we don't have any hints that it's going to happen by September, by the end of September, we'll probably start moving on. Um, so I want to see what the Obspot looks like. The, the chip on the Obspot looks technically like it is actually bigger than the, than the, than the, um, Insta360. So, um, I think the Insta, I, I'm trying to figure out the size difference between the two. It's really hard from the photos. So I ordered one and we'll, we'll get one in and see what it looks like. Go ahead, uh, Courtney. 
Well, I have the Insta360 link and I liked it uh, as a webcam, but I, in this situation for office hours, I'm always using my ATEM because I like to switch back and forth and show stuff, uh, which you can't do with the Insta360 because it's uh, USB-C only, a USB uh, video only. So it has no HDMI out. So I know there's an adapter that you can go from USB to HDMI, but it costs more than the Insta360 does. Well, and, and we have, we still haven't seen it take control, like be able to pass control. So you 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 get it's just a webcam when it goes through, and 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 so yeah. So I don't I don't know if it's been um, it just hasn't been successful to get control and HDMI out. Um, I'm looking at it as kind of an all web solution for a couple other things I'm working on. So, so it's not, not that big of a deal. Um, but the, uh, I, I would pay extra, like I, I would definitely pay for a larger chip, like a one inch, uh, I would love to see a, a one inch chip in the, in one of these cameras that has not a super wide field of view, like, so no more than 60, 60 degrees. And, um, with a one-inch chip and then an HDMI and USB control, that'd be a camera that they could, people could sell a lot of. Um, but we just haven't, seen, you know, we, we there are there are other cameras that do do the USB and HDMI, but they're just single frame. They're, and once you start using a, a gimbal, once you have a gimbal on on a webcam, it's like not. You stop thinking about the other cameras. Well, with a one-inch <laughs> yeah. sensor, it's going to be substantially larger than the, the gimbal and everything else. The camera is going to be sure. more like a box cam than that little teeny thing. That's well, I don't even know how how big the tiny is. I mean, the, the tiny has got a bigger bigger chip in it, so it looks much bigger. It'll be interesting to see it today because it, on the on Amazon, it looks much bigger than the than the uh, Insta three sixty. So we'll we'll compare those. We'll probably talk talk about them a little bit on Sunday and then see what we, see where we go from there. Next question. From a Barrera in Georgia, I recently bought a Mac Mini for editing while traveling, but I noticed it cost $2,000 and noticed a Mac Studio Basic is $2,000. Would it be better to get the Mac Studio or am I good with the Mac Mini? You know, I think that the... Um, uh, I think you're probably fine with the Mac Mini. What you're really getting, if you're getting it for editing, I don't think you're going to see it. I'm assuming for 2K, you got a Mac, you got a Mac Mini Pro. Um, and I think that you you may, the only thing that you may have is that it'll heat up more than the studio. The studio's got half of the studio as a fan. Um, and so um, the, the studio that I got, I think set me back about $3,000, not 2000. So I got a little bit more to it. Um, and so I think you're probably fine. The, the main thing is, is, is how many, um, channels do you have? And I think that the 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 Mac the Mac Mini stu, um, Pro is actually a pretty solid machine as far as that goes. So I don't I don't know I don't know if I'd get the very basic Mac Studio over the Mac Mini. Go ahead, Mitchell. Has anybody noticed the correlation between the uh, the format of the video and the cost of the device you're using? If you're shooting 2K, you're paying 2,000. If you're shooting 4K, you're paying 4,000. You can put 4K in those. I mean, you can you can you can put 4K into a Mac Mini. I mean, it's not the Mac Minis are pretty uh, they're pretty fast. Like I definitely, I mean, it's they're kind of an amazing. The M2s are really snappy. I've done some Resolve work on them just to test them, and uh, I would say the 8 gig is a little low for for a Resolve solution, but the 16 gig work fine. You know, it depends on what you're doing, but it, it really, um, I mean, I'm. I was on Intel before that, and the Intels were half the speed. <laughs> I was I was doing Resolve and other things with them. Uh, next question. 
Paul Wallace from Austin, Texas. Anyone going to Medium Day? It's all day today. It's already started. Started at 8 a.m. Central, and a link is provided. Now go ahead, uh, Courtney. I was confused as to what this really was. I, you know, I thought, oh, it's so it's uh, a collection uh, for spiritualists and mediums. No, uh, it's it's a strange. Were you disappointed, Courtney? That yes. you're like you're ready to I, I wanted have a your palm read and, and they weren't and, there. And you're like they're just writing stories. I don't understand. Yes. Like why are they not? Why is my lifeline so short? Yes, exactly. Yes. I just don't understand what it is that, uh, what they're doing. That's a bad case of branding. I think. Yeah, yeah. I think it's. I think it. It, it is. Um, it's writing, isn't it? I mean, I believe it's a online writer's platform. I, oh, it's it's Medium Day. It's Medium the the platform. I think is their day. Anyway, I don't know if anyone, I don't think anyone here is going to it. <laughs> Next question. Okom Force, Stock, uh, Stockholm, Sweden. What do you think of an easy ring, easy rig as an alternative to a tripod? And a link is provided to easy, easy rig and the Mini Max product. Yeah, we've actually been talking about this a little bit and we are thinking about this might be the camera, the cam A. You know, it's, I think we have to test it and find out whether, um, you know, whether, you know, how, how long does it really, you know, how do you, how do people feel about it when they, when they put it on? Um, but it does look like a, um, uh, a, a potential one. What the easy rig is for people listening is it's a rig that goes on your back, comes up and over and then hangs down on a cable so that it just kind of takes the weight off of your camera. And it may be the right solution, especially for long form or walking around. Um, and we just have to see whether, whether it, um, you know, whether someone can last with it or not, it definitely gets attention at the, you, know, you see, you always see, there's always some company, there's always somebody at one of these conferences that has an easy rig on and you're like, it just looks, the problem I have is it just looks goofy. And so I know that it's useful, but I keep on going, oh, that looks really goofy. Um, but it, it, it could be the right solution. Now go ahead, Courtney. Yeah, one thing, it gets kind of cumbersome and it's hot uh, for the operator because they've got to wear that vest that's in the front and the back. And the other thing is because it, it sticks up above, you know, your head, this is a guy with it on there about three feet above your head. Um, it can be problematic if you're going to a, a, sh a trade show that has, uh, you know, low doors, you know, uh, standard sized doors and things that you have to walk through. You're going to be running into stuff and crashing into stuff all the time. So um, there's that to consider. And a plus, since it's on your backpack, uh, you know, it's on your back. I don't know if you'd be able to carry around a live view or anything else on your back for transmitter, for the Terra deck or anything, any of the ancillary stuff that you well, need and, to and carry around. And we've already around. taken that away. I mean, we've already pulled that away from yeah. the camera operator, so it shouldn't be too much. So they, they still have to have a transmitter, though, on the cameras. Yeah, but you could put a we, I'm sure we could find a way to put a transmitter on the easy And room. the battery for it, yeah, yeah, yeah. a feed for the I, I feel I feel bullish about that. It's mostly it's mostly getting over the fact that, it's, that it looks funny, but anyway, we'll we'll, we'll see. Uh, next question. Todd Weezer from Fort Walton Beach, Florida, asks: I need to move ARVR based training across developmental de development platforms. Anyone know of any formats or pipelines to pass ARVR interactivity activity sequences across development platforms such as Unity or Unreal? Not just models, rigging, or textures. Of course, the USD is going to be probably the thing that you're going to end up using. I don't know if it's supported by all of these um, um, just yet. 
And then it's just a matter of figuring out exactly what interactivity you need to pass between it. So uh, if, is it button pushes? Is it human movement? Um, those things can be streamed. So there's the, while there's built-in tools, Unreal has a lot of uh, built-in tools. There are formats that can, you know, you can be, you're just moving. I mean, a lot of times when you're talking about interactivity, you're just streaming text. You know, this is it's telemetry data that you're sending to, um, you're sending out. So it's just a matter of something repeating it and sending it to two different places. I'm assuming you're trying to send it to two different platforms at the same time. Um, and that should be something that you should be able to do. But we'd have to know what what is the interactivity um, and... Um, and then where does it need to go? And But there should be a way for us to replicate that because again, most of the interactivity that you're talking about are, are text streams of just of, of telemetry data. And so they, they usually are fairly portable uh, as far as that goes because what you're sending is the raw data back and forth to the different platforms. And then those those specific platforms are then translating that. So you have to build a, you'll, you'll have to build translators of when I get this information, this is where I'm putting it into both Unity and, and Unreal. But you should be able to take the same data and get it there. Go ahead, Courtney. Yeah, I just ran across this article uh, yesterday that uh, Google is no longer going to build its uh, augmented reality classes. And instead, it says the company has chosen to focus on AR software instead. So that's interesting. So maybe they're going to work on some type of portable software that's cross-platform that can be used on a variety of AR, VR uh, glasses or goggles or headsets. Um, so there might be some consolidation going on there in Google's efforts to move strictly into software. So you might take a look at that. I think the challenge is I think everyone's going to assume it's going to last between, you know, it'll, it'll get announced at one IO and <laughs> make it to the next IO. Like, will it make it to the next IO? So, so I think that's the, the challenge for Google is it's going to be hard for them to get uptick. I mean, I think that they've, they've burned so many bridges there. I think it's really hard for them to, to innovate because they just, it's hard to get, it's hard to get anybody to take, take Google seriously at this point, you know, when it comes to new, new technologies. And so that's a really uphill battle. They've got to start building stuff and stop announcing things and build them and then keep them running for at least five years. Like, you know, they, they should be considering like, we're not going to take this on unless we're going to run it for five years. Um, because it's just a, you know, it's just a rolling disaster over there. <laughs> like, you know, just, you know, and they do what they do really well. I mean, the things that, you know, the, what they, YouTube is, is, is amazing. Uh, their, their display ad and, and their AdWords are amazing, but that's what pays for everything. And then they have all these little teams that build all this stuff that no one believes in anymore. And so they, I think that Google really has to, someone has to go in there and write that ship. <laughs> you know, so because they can't, every time you see a new technology, I just kind of go, okay, well, we'll see. Uh, next question. From James Foslin, Minneapolis, Minnesota, the Playout B's 2.0 features have really increased its usefulness beyond simple playout. How do developers manage increasing features versus creating new applications? Good, Robert. Uh, for me, for my part, I really enjoyed the presentation the other day with Playout B and Jonas, and I love that how it's getting better and better as a as EVS operator for play out and record, I love the features are getting closer to what DVS does. And for addressing that, making new apps, I say that you can maybe take all the additional features and you allow you allow it to be in more producer mode or play out operator mode. And maybe you have different modes so that you can make the apps be a little more safer for a producer to use so they don't hit buttons and 
kick a clip off the air and then add some more features that a power user can hit the unlock button and be able to scrub a timeline and uh, randomly access clips with time code and do a little more sophisticated uh, features with um, and a more skilled operator will be able to hop around and not fear of, uh, you know, make a mistake on the air. Good, Gordon. Yeah, he's added a whole lot of features that are really useful. Um, scrubbing is the next thing he really needs to add to be able to set in points and out points uh, on the fly and with a separate, uh, a separate non-broadcast window, a small window, a small monitor window that you can use for uh, finding your in points and out points. That would be handy or to preview what's going to happen when one clip plays into the next clip and so on. Uh, so that's really handy. His subscription model is always a thing to worry about when you have a piece of software like this is how, how if you're going to add a lot of improvements to it and he's doing a one-time subscription uh, a one-time purchase you buy the software license the software for a machine or three machines and um, then you're you just use it uh, as long as you want or as many times as you want or as over any any months that you want until uh, he upgrades it. And upgrades are free, I think, for the first year. So any inc small incremental upgrades are pretty free. But then you've got to decide as the publisher whether or not you're going to charge full price for a, a major upgrade uh, so that everybody that's been, that has your software right now is going to pay the full boat again to go for the next version. And that's a, a, a tough upgrade. I, I you know, software used to be, they used to offer, you know, existing owners a 50% discount on an upgrade to the next version. That's a cool way to uh, keep them in the fold. But now everybody is tending to move to subscription. That way they don't have to worry about uh, increasing features every year. They can coast along on the same old product they wrote 10 years ago and just add a few little bells and whistles just to keep people happy that it's being updated and uh, the security has been updated. Yep. They'll keep renewing their subscription, and it's a continuous uh, form, you know, continuous stream of income with a monthly subscription format. Next question from Craig McFarland, Boston, Massachusetts. Thinking about the impacts of writer's strike continuing for months, is there an opportunity viewers will drift beyond watching back catalog shows and movies to web services or live content? Go ahead, Mitchell. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, back in the uh, the early aughts, uh, reality TV was uh, having quite the uh, uh, explosion of shows, and it's sort of since fallen off. I think with the, the strike going on, the reality shows might come back because they're easily implemented. There's no writing involved. It's all live uh, coverage and editing and such. they got to come up with different titles than some of the weird titles they have for some of the shows. But other than that, uh, it's going to be a, uh, a drought of major motion pictures starting next year. Might continue for a few years. Good, Courtney. Yeah, besides the major motion pictures, if you're looking at television, you know, a lot of people are fleeing to YouTube just as their primary viewing, uh, you know, to entertain themselves for, you know, an hour or two hours after dinner before they go to bed. It's, uh, you know, surfing through YouTube and see what's new and what's posted in your favorite channels, et cetera. Uh, since there's no new dramatic shows that are uh, coming out now, almost all the networks are now in reruns on everything. They've run out of all new shows so far, and they're probably not going to have any new ones till next year. So uh, we'll see how that goes. And if if this causes a permanent uh, 
uh, exodus from broadcast television to streaming uh, full-time from YouTube or Vimeo or Facebook or wherever you're getting your uh, content that's created by individuals, you know, influencers uh, or like we were talking earlier, the tech explainers, things like yep. that, educational. Yep. Yeah, I think that the... Uh, uh there, there's a lot more, I think you're going to see a lot more live content as well. I mean, because the technologies are there to do it. And so and a lot of companies um, are thinking about it pretty hard. The The irony of all of this is that the streamers are what everyone's striking against, except the streamers can probably last the longest. And so they're, they're fighting up, they're going up against the, the one organization that can actually go probably for six months or a year without, without losing a significant amount of subscribers because they're back at, they overproduced. So all the streamers put produced way too much content. And now they, you know, they're trying to compete with each other and build up their library. And so they, they have too much um, right now and that they paid for that no one's watching. And so now that people are going to start digging through the back catalog. Um, I think it's really good for YouTube as well. It's really bad for the theaters. I mean, I think the theaters and TV um, are the are the biggest, um, uh, I mean, other than the writers and the, and the, and the, you know, everybody and everybody in production. But but I think that that's going to be really difficult. The, the, the dates you want to look at are um, things start to get uncomfortable after Labor Day. Things get really uncomfortable after, after October. And if it lasts into January, there probably won't be any major feature films um, in 2025. <laughs> so, so the... Um, so those are the those are the dates you want to keep watching as you as you watch the strike go on. And now uh, I'm going to hand it off uh, to Laura on the for the second hour. Thank you, Alex. Um, just a quick reminder that producers can submit questions at any time, and let's get back into them. Next question. Thank you, Laura. Douglas Carmichael writes, with the rise of virtual events impacting the corporate market, could converting surplus ballroom space at mid to high end hotels into ticketed venues help hotels and resorts build and sustain new revenue stream and reinvigorate the con concert industry? I, it, it's possible. Um, you know, I think that I think being able to interconnect venues um, together, I think, is, is um, something that is uh, quite possible. And I, I apologize to Laura there. I just was still in host mode. I just started talking. Um, but, but I will put my hand up in the future uh, and for the rest of the hour. Um, so the, um, but anyway, uh, the, uh, I think that the, um, uh, one of the things I, I was really thinking about, I was staying at a couple of hotels today, um, this over this last uh, week, uh, we were in Seagraph and we were at the Marriott in Burbank was the first one that we were staying at. And it has a little com conference center and they, they had the, the 50th anniversary of the young and the restless was there. So we saw some of the actors and, and I, um, anyway, uh, but anyway, these little, little conference centers, if, if a hotel chain like the Marriott, you know, interconnected all of their hotel, you know, all their little conference centers and their conference rooms and everything else with, you know, real fiber, um, you know, you could build these kind of extended events that happen all over the country or all over the world together um, and I think that's a pretty good business model, um, you know, and so I think that that's going to be really interesting. Um, you know, hotels right now are not actually hurting that much. Um, they are, um, they're pretty full a lot. And so, so I think that it's, um, they're, I think that they, but I think that they could actually be more competitive. The one thing I found is that I looked at that conference center and thought how nice it would be to go to something like Seagraph at a nice little conference center, as opposed to going to the LACC, which I found to be a, a small slice of hell. <laughs> so, so, so anyway, so, so the, uh, um, so, you know, I, I think that the conference centers have an issue with these, these, these events getting more distributed, but I don't know if necessarily the, I think that the hotels actually are in a pretty good place to build these extended events. Uh, go ahead, Mitchell. 
I think that uh, Taylor Swift should buy up the hotel conference centers and then have the Taylor Swift tour um, attract you, uh, people to stay at her have, hotel and in her conference center. Have, have you seen what Taylor Swift is doing with, you know, um, giving money away? It is. It's shocking. It's stunning. It's not just to her crew. She gave $100,000 to everyone on the crew. Um, all the drivers. All the drivers to, for her crew. Um, but uh, Taylor Swift is giving, she's quietly not, I guess you're not allowed to publish the number, I think, is my understanding. She's giving um, uh, money to the food banks. Every city she goes to, she's giving money to food banks. And it's not like ten dollars. Uh, what they said in San Francisco is she gave, gave enough money in San. She gave enough money to the San Francisco Food Bank to pay to feed five hundred thousand people for ten years. <laughs> like it was like wow. it was like it was like a big number, you know. And and she's doing that. And she's I mean obviously she's making a lot of money in these cities. But there is something that she's doing that I mean I I just think that's a it's a master course in. You know, you know, she's obviously people are first going to be excited that she's making so much money doing this, but then there's going to be the backlash of, oh, you know, she's, she's gotten really rich on this thing and da, 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 And I think she's, it's a masterclass in spreading the wealth out. And I think that a lot of corporations would do well to watch what Taylor Swift is doing of doing things and not making a big, she's not talking about it. She's not, you know, it, but it shows up in the press. If you actually do a search for Taylor Swift, you know, donations, food banks, you'll see little local press items all over the country that are happening in local news talking about Taylor Swift gave all this money to it. You know, it's just a, it is, I don't, whoever thought of it was genius. Like it is a genius thing to do. Um, and it makes a huge difference. I mean, she's spreading out, you know, she's probably, you know, going to end up giving away a hundred million dollars, you know, um, or more um, to these, you know, to an impact. So when she impacts something and when she's making money there, she's giving money back to it. Um, just an uh, incredible idea. You know, go ahead, and Robert. you need to keep in mind that that's the only way that artists are making any money is being on tour somewhere at a concert. They don't make it from the traditional music sales like they used right. to. They make mm -hmm. it from concerts. Which is funny because concerts used to be the, the loss leader for the albums. Yeah, so the whole thing has uh, turned around. Yeah, go ahead, Robert. And her concerts just rocked L.A. for six nights at SoFi Stadium, seating 70,000 people in the largest stadium in the city, except for the Rose Bowl. Um, and it had a major bump in the economy in Los Angeles also. So millions of dollars of people traveling here and spending and booking up hotels. Yeah. Um, spectacular. And lots of news, everyone in line for buying all the swag and T-shirts and everything else. So there's a huge economy behind all of that. Yeah, no, absolutely. There's not that many bands left that can do, not many artists left that can do that kind of, I don't know if there's anybody left that could do that, that kind it's partially the, I think that the, uh, the age bracket that she's, that she's, um, uh, you know, attracting is also, uh, determined. <laughs> you know, so, so I think that's, you know, they're determined and their, and their parents are just trying to hang on, you know, so, so anyway, so, uh, so I think that that's the, um, so I think that's the case. I, we had a, uh, a, a babysitter one time that was really into Taylor Swift and, and all the only reason she ba did babysitting was so she could make money to buy Taylor Swift tickets because she would see Taylor Swift at every show in California. You know, um, this is years ago. I don't know if she still does that. She's probably, um, but anyway, it's, it's, it's intense. I've, I've heard the concert itself. I've, you know, I didn't get to see it, but I've heard it's quite a spectacle. Like it's, it's, uh, you know, they spared no expense. So next question. From Talat oh, Lopez. From, that's, that's Laura. I'm, I'm just, this is hard. I've never turned. I've never handled. Right, we'll wait the second for the hour proper cue. We'll, we'll wait for the proper cue. Go ahead. Next question. 
from Tulag Lopez Waterman in Galisteo, New Mexico. Could you do some HDR live stream tests of the sunset? I would love to look at that and the YouTube tone mapping as an experiment. Alex? Yeah, yeah we'll do that next week. Um, I can do it in the sun. The sunrise is actually a little a little bit easier. Um, the uh, So we might do that. And the, it's more interesting in the sense that um, uh, I have a lot of birds <laughs> that are making a lot of noise in, in the morning, which would be kind of fun uh, from an ambisonic perspective. So yeah, we'll, we'll work on that. Maybe get it as early as next, uh, next week. That could be really cool. Yeah, absolutely. Next question. From Paul Wallace, Austin, Texas. Stellar has many versions of Mike that two office panelists use, uh, Courtney and Alex, I believe. What is the recommended model and what configuration is best? Shock mount, boom, preamp, etc. Courtney? Well, I'm using the Stellar X2, as we all know. And, it, and the nice thing is it, it comes with a great shock mount. It comes with a little carrying case, a zippered case, and a, and a pop filter, which I'm using all of. And I'm just using one of the cheap... Uh, you know, $13 boom arms, uh, because the good shock mount that they have on the, uh, that comes with the Stellar X2 uh, pretty much keeps a lot of the noise out. I do have to have some uh, little pieces of, of uh, foam on the springs of the cheap shock mount arms so that you don't hear very much of the boom, boom, the bong, the long uh, decay of those springs if you bump them. Uh, the X, the X3 is a similar size diaphragm uh, from Stellar. Um, I don't necessarily recommend it because the only thing it really adds to you, it, it has different patterns. Uh, I think it's still cardioid, but it has a, a low frequency roll off, which I don't want to do, and a uh, and a, 10, a minus 10 dB pad. And since my, uh, you know, I don't have to worry about uh, having too much gain for the uh, preamp that I'm using. I'm using a Rodecaster uh, Pro two, which seems to have significant gain uh, for it to go out. And besides, I'm using it in a noisy environment with uh, and letting uh, letting Zoom manage uh, the noise cancellation right now. So it's not really taking advantage of the low noise floor of the microphone itself because Zoom is uh, cutting a lot of that noise out. So uh, the X2 works fine. It's 199 bucks at Amazon and it comes with all those accessories included and free shipping if you're on Prime. Go ahead, Alex. Yeah, I think one of the challenges is that if you're in a louder environment or in a hard environment, the the Stellar X2 can be a little bit of a challenge. I mean, I think that, um, you know, in my room, I until I put all my blankets up, there was no way to use this mic. You know, it's just a way to, um, I like it, but you just need to know that you need to be in a soft environment, probably a quieter environment because it is, uh, it's really sensitive to, you know, to... Um, everything. So, so you get a lot of resonance, you get a lot of bits and pieces that sound really nice, but you do have to know that outside of the right environment, you probably lose most of that benefit, um, you know, in the, in the actual process, if you don't, if you don't treat the room um, to take care of the mic. Alex, if you were to go back to another mic of the ones you've previously used, would the high LP or 40 be where you'd go back to? If you needed more off-axis rejection and whatnot. yeah, I mean, I think that the high PR forty is probably the the you know that the high PR forty's got a great off-axis rejection, um, and and I think that it it works really well. I'm trying to think of other ones that I've used. Yeah, I don't I don't I don't feel like there's a huge difference from sensitivity for the TLM one hundred two, which is what I um, what I also have. 
um, that, that I've used there. Um, I think that those have been two of the mics that, uh, of the ones that I've used for this kind of show, um, those are the major ones. I, I do find that the, the DPA has actually been working pretty well when I'm on the road. So, you know, I, I'm tempted to play with the DPA for meetings because this oftentimes feels like a big heavy thing in a meeting. So I've been thinking about having the, the, the one, the, um, my little headset, my little DPA. I did find that the sibilance on the Countryman was a little high. Um, so, um, so I, I, I've kind of moved more towards the DPA, which has a better bass response and a little less sibilance than, than it, it still has sibilance, but a little less than the, than the Countryman. I know I had a lot of trouble when I was doing it with breath sounds in the headset mic, but I do not like the idea that the mic is sitting on my desk and yeah. with my vision hitting right. the mic is actually a thing. Yeah. And, so. and one of the things that's really important with a headset mic is the the mic placement becomes super important. So um, the big thing that I do is I go to the corner of the, my mouth and then I go back an inch and that's where my mic sits. And so I'm, I'm always like looking over and making sure when I pull it down, I want it to be right there. Um, if it's any further forward, you're going to get breath sounds and all kinds of other things. And so you, and some of the mics are really hard, like the piles and the pulsons that we were kind of using at the very beginning of office hours, they were so long that you had to do this weird bendy thing to get anywhere near it. And so um, the nice thing about like the DPAs and the Countrymen's are that they have a nice little sliding mechanism on the inside that that kind of is is easy to to manage. I think Mitchell wants to get in on this conversation with us. Uh, in addition to the right microphone, also the right mic technique is something that... Uh, um, more people can, uh, in, you know, use because you need to use a, yeah. a, a condenser microphone a little differently than a, a dynamic or a PR40. You got to get your voice uh, in the right spot. But um, I, I like all those options. The only thing I just can't tolerate are plosives. They drive me crazy. Well, and the key there is I try to, when we talk to people about mic usage, you'll notice that what I try to tell people is when, if you draw a line, you know, if you draw, make a box that comes from the corners of your eyes and goes straight out, you want that mic to be just outside of that box, you know, so you don't want to, you know, that, that avoids most of the plosives. And you'll see that I, my mic is right outside that edge right now, you know, and so, but, you know, if I moved it in, I'd be much, you'd be much more likely to hear sounds outside of that. Um, I'm a big fan of getting the mic as close as you can uh, without starting to get some of the, you know, you start to get the, you know, the, the whole um, um, <laughs> proximity effect. Um, but the, but I think that, that get, I believe by getting it closer, the issue is, is that you gain the mic up less, which means you hear less of the environment. So, so that's the big thing, pulling the mic closer to you, but staying out of this, this channel um, is, is really important. And I think a lot of people get, get that, get into that channel and then they end up with plosives. Um, next question. Oh, I'm sorry. Courtney, I, I'm jumping you wanted on. to. Sorry, you wanted I'm, I'm going to figure this in. out. I'm going to figure this out. Everyone just ignored me too. There was like, he's just crazy. Don't just ignore him. Just and, and yeah. just, Laura just quiet, quietly just went. Courtney, just ignore. Me. Thank you, Laura. I had one other thing to say to warn warn about the uh, Stellar X2. If you didn't see the show that uh, where I I talked about the problem that uh, I think Nigel was having with his uh, Stellar X2 was a hum problem. Uh, it was a little sensitive to hum when he touched it. You could hear uh, 60 hertz hum. And that can't, comes from the fact that the, uh, here, I'll pop mine up into the frame here so you can see it. Um, the, the case uh, that covers the preamp between the capsule and the back uh, ring here that holds the case in, it's all powder coated. It's, it's this beautiful, uh, smooth black color, but that black color uh, is um, an insulator because uh, it's powder coated. Uh, so it makes it uh, uh, so that it is, is isolated. 
And that center uh, ring, that center uh, tube that covers the preamp, which is the preamp is fairly sensitive since it's a high gain preamp. It's fairly sensitive to electromagnetic impulse, you know, from coming from all around you. And the problem is when they powder coat that uh, that tube, it's powder coated to the inside and the outside, and that insulates it from the ground, so it's not grounded. Uh, so on some of them, they, they've uh, filed down the edges of them to make contact with the ring, and the ring at the bottom is also powder-coated, so there's that problem. The inside threads are not powder-coated, so they contact the ground, but there's no way of passing that ground to the tube that covers the preamp, which is made out of steel. And so um, uh, you have to make sure that the, you sand down, the sand off the powder coating on the very edges of that tube so it makes good electrical contact. And you can check it with a uh, continuity meter to make sure it's making good electrical contact to make sure that shielding covers the preamp. Otherwise, you're going to have problems with uh, 60 hertz home. And a number of people have reported that problem where, where they hadn't sanded down the uh, the insulating uh, powder coat uh, to make good contact with ground. Next question. From Douglas Carmichael, what does the panel think of the foldable dual screen external monitors like the U-Perfect Delta or LePal dual views? I like the concept, but being accustomed to macOS HIDPI text, I'd be concerned about the jaggies at 1080p or 2K versus upscaling to 4K. Go ahead, Alex. I have to admit, I use 1080p monitors all the time and they don't bother me. <laughs> so maybe it's, but I, I, it might be that I'm just uh, used to 1080p and used to the, the jaggies. Um, you know, I, I didn't find, you know, I think it looks that what I look at looks totally fine. So I wouldn't worry about it too much. Uh, it does look like the folding monitor looks actually kind of cool. And so um, it's, it looks like for travel and being able to just have something in your backpack that you can pull out and get two monitors instead of one monitor. It's kind of interesting. So um, we'll see how that goes. Next question. From Jack Rubel, Breckenridge, Colorado. Nerves can be five-dimensional spatial location, viewing direction, neural network, output color, output density. Can you comment on NERFs or to NERFs potential? Um, I Go think ahead, that Alex. Sorry. Go ahead. Uh, the um, uh, nerfs. Uh, I think that the, the looking at nerfs now versus nerfs potential. I mean, I think a lot of us are really excited about where nerfs are going. The um, and these are uh, neural radiance fields. And basically, what the we're going to probably do a second hour on nerfs sometime soon to talk about what they all what this all means. But but the big thing is they're not really ready for prime time yet. But they are something that we're excited about. the The, the big thing is you can capture nerfs and start to work with them with much less work. So let's say you have an environment that you want to work through. Um, you can take um, to try to do photogrammetry and try to rebuild the entire scene and everything else might take you weeks. Nerfs will take hours to put it together, and you can walk through it. The the and you can you know there's a, the more data you give it, the more you're going to be able to get. The problem is. These this isn't these aren't discrete models. They're not discrete textures. They are they are fields of information. And so the, the issue is is that you need to. Um, so I think that where nerfs could we might see nerfs early on are things where we're visualizing something that doesn't need to be edited. So we're visualizing walking through a house. For I, mean, I think nerfs could be incredibly useful 
uh, for um, things like, uh, you know, location walkthroughs, because you're not trying to edit anything. You're just, this is what it looks like and you're wandering through it. Um, so I think nerfs could be really good for that. For actual visual effects and shows, I think that it's probably, probably a little ways away from making that, that totally useful. Just another quick reminder that our producers can submit the questions at any time. And we have some room today to do that and vote on those questions so you know what order you want us to answer them in. And with that, next question. Paul Wallace returns with, uh, yeah, Austin, Texas. Any thoughts on Twitter rebranding to X and on Threads' new push for users? And he refers to a socialmediatoday.com article. Go ahead, Alex. Well, I actually think it was a pretty good move by by Meta to try to get threads out there and and see if it can't get the, this is the time for them. If there's ever a time to uh, go after the users of Twitter, this is it. Um, so I think that it's a, it's a good move by Meta. Uh, I think that um, they may be able to, I mean, they're big enough that they can keep on pushing at it for years. Um, and so I think that, that, that they could potentially take advantage of the situation and grow it, even if they only get to 50 million or 100 million, it's still a lot of people and it's still yeah. a business. And so, so I think that, that, that um, uh, there's a possibility there. The hard part is, is that you, I mean, as a user of, of X now, uh, I, you, know, you kind of look over at it and the, so far the, the, the stream of, of content on on threads has not been compelling, but doesn't mean that it couldn't be. It's just so far people like me, for instance, spend 99% of our time on, on X and 1% of our time on threads. And, and if, if that continues, it's very hard to get through. And the problem is, is that we have large followings that we've, that we've cultivated over a decade, um, in on X and, you know, that's a, that's a pretty hard thing to move. And so, um, so a lot of people, I mean, there's some people that just said, okay, I'm leaving and I'm going to go somewhere. And then they're in an empty room. I'm hoping everybody else shows up and everybody else is kind of like, well, well, whatever, you know, you know, so, so I think that's the issue. That's exactly the experience I've had is I don't want to, I don't want to stay with X. I don't want to support that, but you know, you, you start federating things and I've got a pocket over here, a pocket's gone to discord. Some have gone to threads, some have gone to Mastodon and it's like, I don't want to be opening five, six, seven apps to get what I can get on the app formerly known as Twitter. I agree. And I think that's the problem is, is that it really is this, you know, you, you, it's, it's just hard to spend, you know, just how many places am I going to go to connect with my, with my friends and everything else. And, and I think that we may, m- many of us may be in the, the outer edge of that, of how many places I want to check every day. You know, like mm-hmm. right now I check Facebook like once a month and I just go in and go, oh, sorry, I don't go here very often. You know? yeah. And so, and, and, um, and so I think that for me, I actually spend more time, like I spend a lot of time in Twitter and then I spend a lot of time and I like the format. I think that the problem for me is I just like the short format and I, I have to admit, I really, the one thing that, the, the thing that I liked the least about what Twitter did or X or whatever wasn't the name. It wasn't all the other stuff. It was allowing long posts. So I see people like put these long posts and I'm like, oh, I won't look at them. Like I just, mm-hmm. I won't look at them. I won't respond to them. I won't like, cause I'm just kind of like, that's why I like Twitter is that everything was short. <laughs> like, you know, and so uh, that's, you know, I did like that going to 250, whatever, 55 or 250 words was useful, but, but over that, and I make almost all of my tweets, sometimes I let them leak a little bit, but they almost, I almost always shorten them to the old limit as opposed to the, um, the new, whatever, un, unlimited, whatever, which ruins the platform in my opinion. Go ahead, Robert. 
Well, if you break it into like seven year increments, you know, and start to go backwards, everything iterates and change and new platform comes along and then old one, they either iterate, upgrade, change, or they go away and new things replace them. So things will continue to kind of iterate and change just like office hours does. Yes. But my, my issue with this is, is when we all moved from MySpace to Facebook, we all moved as a group one place. This right. time, everything's kind of fractionating and moving out. And I mean, I have some stuff on X that I can't like the, um, I actually have a following that they don't, that, that entity doesn't exist anymore, but right. they actually follow me on X and I don't want to give that up. Mitchell, you wanted to jump in on this conversation? I just wanted to say that now that Elon has it uh, rebranded to X, does that mean that we can't use X for anything? It, it's it's now this program and he owns the rights to it? Yeah, it's like, uh, why didn't he pick a different letter? It's, I, I don't actually have an answer for you on that. Um, legally, I don't know that, I think there's going to be, there may be eventually some challenges to that. I don't know if anybody's decided if they're going to challenge that because there's a couple other places that have trademarks around that letter. Um, and with that said, let's go to the next question. Kind of like Facebook going to Meta, I think it's because it's a bigger umbrella. We move on. Douglas Carmichael, one argument for federal assistance to venues during pandemic was artists needed them to connect with their communities. Could the accidental model integrating digital physical help small venues multiply their effectiveness? Could it scale? Go ahead, Courtney. Well, it has. You know, there's been an explosion of virtual uh, of virtual venues uh, as we've gone along. But during the pandemic, uh, a lot of that federal the federal money of federal assistance was going to all businesses who had to close down or lay off uh, uh, their workers because of the restrictions uh, of people gathering together in one closed in space. What a lot of uh, the artists themselves though, didn't necessarily suffer if they were well-known artists, you know, people like uh, Ben Folds had, uh, he did a, a thing from his apartment. It looked like this every Saturday, he did a live stream, they play requests and uh, keep his followers along and they'd support him with Patreon, uh, Patreon donations and donations over YouTube. So it was kind of a way for, for artists that are well-known enough that have a following to continue to uh, reach their uh, communities uh, during the pandemic where he was even prevented from performing with the rest of the uh, Ben Foles Five, which was actually two other guys. Uh, so uh, the, the established artists didn't really uh, have a problem uh, during the pandemic, and should we go back into a pandemic? I think we'll go back to the same thing: is the uh, you know people will be streaming. The um, uh, the situation where there's just a closed venue where no public is invited in still has some problems uh, if we get back into that situation. But it did launch the ability, you know, upgraded a lot of those venues to put in streaming equipment so that they have it to continue now when they can do hybrid events where they can now stream with an audience in the room and stream as well uh, to a broader, a much broader audience. Uh, and if they can just figure out a way, I guess they can do subscription and figure out a way to monetize that better, uh, they can keep it going. You know? Go ahead, Alex. Yeah, I think that, I mean, I, I think the future is going to be to federate all of these um, venues. Many, many venues are going to figure out how to do this, and they're going to be the ones that probably do the best. 
And I think what you're going to end up with is, you know, you're going to have some venues that are, let me get a better color there, um, some venues that are broadcasters. And so they're broadcasting out. And those, they don't have, they're not really built for um, receiving uh, a feed. And then you'll have some that are receiving. Um, these are, you know, receiving these, these there. And so these are getting all of these. And then you're going to have um, some that do both, you know, so you'll have some that can receive and, um, I didn't pick very good colors there, did I? So receive as well. So the main thing is, is that um, then what happens is you have to figure out how to scale that. So you put LED walls and so on and so forth, but you could theoretically let people go so that what it allows for is like, let's say, and this actually benefits smaller bands than bigger bands. I want to stream possibly from a venue that I built in my garage or my my barn or whatever, but I can go out to a whole bunch of venues that are selling alcohol and doing all the other things that they're doing. They pay for some subscription for me to play and it's there. Now there's potentially you could build two-way communication. You could do a lot of other things related to that. But the but you could have um, you know, a place for people to see those those bands. Now sometimes they're gonna, you know, obviously bands can tour, but the touring is very inefficient. You know, um, and it's really, really hard, especially for smaller bands, because, you know, you, you're going to all these places. You don't know if you're going to get, you get 750 people in one city and 150 in another and 300 in another. Whereas if you could play once and get to even, even if you get half the number of people going, you're able to do it to all of them at one time. You could potentially get a much larger payday with much less effort. So I think that the, um, I think that you're going to see that. And I think that theaters are going to be part of that as receiver groups. I mean, we're already seeing some of that happening, but I think it could also be venues. And I think that there's, you know, I think you're going to see that technology slowly roll out probably over the next five to 10 years. And the funny thing is what may accelerate all of that is actually the strike that we talked about earlier. Um, if, uh, if 2025, becomes, you know, if, if the strike goes to January or February, all the theaters are going to go into, you know, triage mode. Like, how do we put things, what, what kind of content can we put into the theaters? And you're going to see an explosion of live and all kinds of other stuff going into these theaters because the technology exists to do it now. It didn't exist before um, the last time there was a strike. Um, and so the theaters have to survive. And I think that, I think that if the strike goes until February, there's a 50-50 chance that theaters will be half live, half, I mean, the movie industry will never be the same. Like, it'll, like I, I think that it'll, I think it literally, the theaters will fill up Monday through Wednesday with live content and other content and interactive content to survive. Um, and, by, and by the time the movies back, come back to recover, the theaters will be kind of on to, on to the next thing. Like, you know, they're, you know, they'll be on to um, doing other things other than movies and movies will never be able to get the kind of numbers that they were getting before. So it's a really, the strike is really could be one of those moments that we all remember because the, re the reality is, is that the timing for the strike was really should have been three or four years ago, you know, and it's just a little late, you know, and so that's the, that's going to be the challenge for, for that. But I think it could reorganize the entire distribution model um, and, and I don't know if there's any way to go back you know, after that. Go ahead, Robert. Oh, sorry. Go ahead, Robert. Yeah, the interesting thing is, I think that the various unions have different versions of preparedness for this strike, like the Directors Guild had this done. So the Writers Guild and the actors are on maybe different levels or maybe not as with it with having it worked out to a solution. And maybe Courtney. <laughs> Go ahead, Courtney. Yeah. 
Uh, well, no, I was just going to comment on something else, but they, you know, because of the writer's strike, a lot of these shows and comedians have, have pumped up their uh, podcast broadcast. Uh, I know, you know, Bill Maher, who does his HBO show Real Time, can't do a show without writers, so they've been on hiatus since then. But he has this uh, YouTube channel called Club Random, and I've always wanted to ask uh, Alex, what is wrong with the contrast all of his podcasts look like this. There's no blacks. There's no contrast. I don't think it's smoke in the room, but uh, it's a it's a lut issue. I mean, yeah, he's, he's just. I, but it's it's four it's three cameras and they all look identical. Somebody no, has decided. tuned them all to someone be with really bad taste. Someone with a good a high technical skill and bad taste. That's what that is. And he can afford to bring in a professional video engineer. He, he probably you know? did. He probably did. And that person likes the look and he wants this kind of otherly whatever like. Uh, those things, especially when all the cameras match, like someone worked it's, at that. Like there it's was low meeting. contrast to the point of you know, yeah. uh, you know, there's no white. Courtney, there's that's no just blacks. the beginning of his problems because the, so, if you actually watch the show, it's horrible. Oh, it's it is horrible it's completely horrible. It's completely oh. off the rails. It's uh, it's out of control. Yes. He's stoned. He's. Uh, I think. Uh, I think that. I think that that what what may be happening when you don't see any whites and any blacks. Oftentimes that means somebody turned a log on. They turned the log log look. Yeah, log C on no, all so, the so they're, You know they they, they turn. could color correct it before they put no, it out. I'm, no, I'm saying the so <laughs> the funny thing that happened on YouTube for a while it's is not that suddenly live. there was this log look. Like there was a log look that happened on YouTube, and we 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 realized at some point that it was just that creators didn't know how to turn the LUTs on, and so that you know like the creators who bought the cameras were getting log, and and that's why you know, like like now the cameras automatically go to a rec 709 in this case mine is like rec 709 800x or whatever um and uh but all the log stuff we saw and then it became a look like everybody had to have that look and i had to like reduce contrast on stuff i was doing i was like uh, uh okay you know and and so but the log look became the thing but it was really that they just didn't know that they were shooting the wrong thing and they couldn't figure out how to do it and they put it out and it was a it was a it was a sad time but that what that looks like when you showed it to me is the color balance is a little I, off, and it's. I know it, it looks like log C out of the cameras, yeah, yeah. And, but it's edited. It's not a live stream. No, but it's, it's just a person doesn't color know. Corrected. They either don't know or they like that. They, they're still going back a ten years and doing the look that we we realized was just a big mistake. <laughs> so anyway. Alex, kind of circling back to this actual question, would you say that the writer strike could be could create as much of a change in? media as 9-11 did to the airline industry oh yeah oh yeah if it lasts it just depends on how long it lasts it won't make i mean it'll recover relatively quickly if we if it happens before october but as we go into october the the grinding will be i mean it will by by february the industry will never be the same like you know and by so it has the potential is what you're saying the potential it's not going to do it right now but i think that if the writer strike and the actor strike it's the fact that both of them are happening at the same time because they're both they're the actor strike is killing events next year the writer strike is killing events in 2025 and so you're 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 it's a, it's a smart move by the unions it's just that it's it's that it it could but what what always happens in a vacuum is a vacuum creates opportunity for other people and and so the the you know so that's the challenge i'm not i definitely think 
they need to figure out what their strike, you know, like I think that the strike is valid. Like I think that they, they need to reorder what's going on. I feel like it's a little late. You know, that's the only thing. I don't disagree with the strike's content. I just think that they're about four, four three or four years. Because when everyone was desperate to build all this content to compete with all the other streamers mm-hmm. was the time to strike. Like that's yeah. like, we're going to set the limit right now. And then they were flexible thinking, well, let's see how this goes. And they were really excited that there was all these big names and all this other stuff. But 2017, 2018 was the time to strike. Like that was the time to like, hey, we need to set the rules of what this looks like. And it's hard, it's always, you know, and, you know, it's always easy to look back and say that was the time. But that was the time to do it. Now you have an oversupplied system that is, and and folks that don't even know if their business model is working. Like that's the big problem is the streamers don't even know if this is actually going to work. They're, and so putting more weight on it is something they're highly resistant to. And if they, but it, but what if they, if, the, if it extends, it's not going to kill the streamers. It's going to kill all the other things that depend on that content. So it's going to kill TV. It's going to kill theater. It's going to kill the theaters. And it's going to, so it's going to kill all the things that were providing traditional income um, and leave the only thing left will be the streamers and online things, you know, by, by the end of it. So it's a really, it's a, you know, if it lasts long, I mean, and, and I think there's, there's some pressure on the streamers to make a deal by the producers who want to make more money. But the problem is, is no one's going to break rank, you know, on either side. And so the, and, and they're, and it's it's pretty intractable, so it really could last a long time. And if it gets again, my prediction is if it gets into February, there's about a sixty percent chance that we'll never we'll look back and go, well, that was when we stopped doing what we do. Yeah. <laughs> like, you know, like and yep. and that's the because it, it's you're talking about a year and a half of no real movies. Like you're just talking about this huge drought of no real movies, and it, that's not going to be that's not going to it's not like everyone's just going to close down. They're going to find something else to do with those theaters. And if the and if if those things start to make money, they're never going to look back. Like you know the if you you know when you understand the math of theaters, the theaters Monday through Wednesday are at very low utilization. Like just go up and open up a, open up a web page and look at that, and you'll see utilization at twenty percent, ten percent, five percent, zero you know three percent across the first the first three days of the week, and then on a really good movie run, they might start getting up to thirty percent, forty percent utilization. If they start doing live events that are one time only you can only see them and they start getting utilization only to 20 or 30 or 40 percent every day they're never going to want to go back to movies <laughs> like they're never going to want to go back to that because because they're now making more money than they were making before it may not they're not making it's not that they're making big hits you know it's, there's they're not going to have the three weeks they make millions of dollars but they're going to have it's going to get spread out over all these other things and it's much more stable so and and they're going to move to corporate events they're going to move to live events they're going to move to all these other things they're going to fill that time up with and and when they take that away they're going to take away screening times and when they take away the screening times they make the the movies not sustainable and then it all goes to streaming (laughs) that's that's that's, and and that's i'm not saying that that's what's going to happen but that's a pretty strong potential if the strike goes until february or march you know like that's the you know that it, it gets pretty ugly pretty fast because people will make new new ideas. They'll come up with new ideas. They're already, I mean, they're already coming up with new ideas. <laughs> so about how they're going to handle it. Everybody's talking about Plan B and Plan C. Next mm. question from Eric Hers, Hartford, Connecticut. Alex mentioned using five Wowza servers to scale an internal corporate webcast to thirty thousand viewers. What were the logistics of getting these deployed and tested at that company? Um, we did it. Yeah, we did it at a golf a golf event, and um, the uh, we I think it was five. It was two origin servers with five, I believe five, maybe six 
uh, edge servers. It didn't turn out to be that because we're doing multicast. So we're not serving up to everyone. We're just, you know, a multicast is much more robust. We had to work with the network, the, t- the network team um, um, to do that. There's a company called Straight Up Technologies that is the, they are the, probably the best in the world at, at doing large networks. And so it's really, you have to work with them to tune all of that. Um, we had the servers long, long ahead of time. And uh, so we built them up, tested them, make sure that they're all ready to go. Then you get there and there's probably three or four days of testing before people start showing up. And then usually the first couple hours, you're kind of on the first time you do it. Um, I think we did it a couple of years in a row, so it got better. Um, but but that's the, um, uh, and that was a, um, but it was, you know, it's multicast is really powerful if you have someone managing the network that's going to work with you on it. Um, but if, the, if not, then it doesn't work. <laughs> so, 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 so you have to, you have to really work with them and they, they were very good at it. So it's, but it's a very doable, doable thing. Next question. Paul Wallace from Austin, Texas provides a photo link here and wants comment on this use of a Segway at a show. This was at South by Southwest event about robotics and he's using a Segway and a Steadicam outdoors on grass. Go ahead, Alex. It's not, not actually a Steadicam. That's a, I think that's either a Movi or a, one of the DGI um, stabilizers, but um, like the Ronin. So it's either a Ronin or a, you know, it's, and which could work as well. So but um, it looks good. You know, the big thing is just figuring out how to get it to everywhere you need to go when you're, if you're going to a conference, getting up and down stairs, you know, that kind of thing is, you know, where you put it and the logistics of it. But we are thinking about it. Go ahead. Next question. From Peter Belbin, Houston, Texas. With recent special coverage events, have the number of volunteers been sufficient or are way more people needed? And if so, what kinds of roles? Go ahead, Alex. I wouldn't say we need way more. I, mean, I, I think so. We had twenty-two people working on on the on the last one, um, uh, but I do think that you know, we probably would have done a little bit more. We were probably one or two people solid, one or two people short on the floor, especially on the second day. Uh, so we, you know, we're kind of multitasking. And the bottom line is, we can scale up to whatever. Uh, you know, it would be fun to have. You know, I think that eventually having we were a little chaotic on the timing, so having more panelists would be great. But in the time frame and everything else, that didn't really work out. But I think that, um, you know, we can scale up and add more people to a lot of things. And we've, you know, we haven't been really successful. I'd like to bring back post, post-production where we're shooting lots and lots of little shorts and videos and so on and so forth. I put it aside because I just wanted to focus on the live portion of it and get the live portion work, working seamlessly. But then the idea is to add next year, add the post back in, at least on the ones that I'm working on, um, is to add that post-production back in. Because I think that there's a... A future where, I mean, again, we can add as many people as, you know, we, we have to get some of the stuff working, but we, I think we could successfully add as many people as we need to. There's a couple things that we, that we were hobbled by for the post-production, which is why we stopped is without a lot of bandwidth on site, it was just impossible to get stuff out, you know, to the, to remote editors. And it just turned into this big bulge of stuff that got stuck. And so that's uh, right now I have, um, you know, we were dealing with 10 megs and 20 megs and 30 megs on site, um, potentially in New York as an example, and probably what we'd have in Vegas, we'd probably be somewhere between 500 megs and a gig, you know, coming out of our booth. So our ability to push everything up is in a much different place than it was before. Um, and so that's what we're working on now. And so if we, if we get that sorted out, um, now we're able to really do what we want to do as far as post, you know, pushing post down. So we'll probably start to do that. So that, that post team remotely could get very large. 
Um, uh, we have to get pretty good at some of the formatting and stuff like that, but I think that we could do that. Um, we can always use more people on site. <laughs> you know, like there's always, uh, I think that when we had Cinegear, we had uh, a, a lot of people on site and it all was worth it. You know, um, I think that uh, we had people blocking. I mean, I'm always amazed that people are willing to cross camera, but that's a, I don't even cross camera for tourists, you know, like, you know, I, I stay around and, and people just, and they, you can see them, they look at us, they walk through on purpose. I'm always like, really? Hmm. <laughs> so you'll even see me on air. Like, you'll, you'll be, I'll be sitting there talking, I'll see someone and like, hmm. like, really? <laughs> you, get, you, get a, you get a lump of cold. Anyway. We were commenting about it on the first day of uh, SIGGRAPH. There was somebody in some rather loud um, attire walking behind you while you yeah, were, yeah. Okay photobombing you. Yeah. Go ahead, Mitchell. Yeah, there was another shot on the second day. Uh, Alex was in the middle of conversing and this person, you can see him just entering the frame, crossing in front of the camera. And Alex just went, are you kidding me? I mean, I could see it written <laughs> yeah. all over his face. Yeah. And the guy just stopped like yeah. that and he kind of started walking yeah. backwards. And you just had this look like this as yes. they walked away. It was uh, quite obvious. Um, <laughs> I just wanted to comment. Uh, first of all, I thought that the having... Uh, two people uh, doing the show uh, with you and Nick was was brilliant. I, I just gave so much energy back and forth and also inspired a lot of the things that you went to see. And the, the potential shame of that is if you rely completely on volunteers for all these jobs, what happens when you don't have somebody to fill a key position? So uh, it's just a, uh, it's a it's a nightmare of juggling, I think, to, to be able to pull all that together. Yeah, and we're starting to see, sorry, Alex, we're starting okay. to see on the back end, we're starting to see crews kind of shrink in the control room and mm -hmm. the, the off-site crews. So, um, yep. Yeah, so so it'd be it'd be uh, um, I you know I think that there's you know I think it's a pretty interesting opportunity, especially for those shows, um, to uh, to you know to, of what we're putting putting together. But we'll we'll see how it goes. We'll I absolutely already know that I cannot be around for NAB New York. I'm in class right. from the fifth through the twenty first, and I I'm going to be doing about sixteen hour days with other things. So yeah. Yeah. Um, we'll, we'll, we'll figure it out. Like we always, next we, we always need to figure it out. From Craig McFarlane, Boston, Massachusetts. When deciding what tech to bring on vacation, what is your space or weight limit? Go ahead, Alex. Um, I tend to, I have a, uh, I have a, a 1510 that I carry with. And the problem is I don't want to check my gear most of the time. So I might put tripods into a larger, uh, into a larger uh, case, uh, you know, that I might check. Um, but my 1510 and my backpack are the, are, are the limits. It's, it's not really a weight limit, but I have a backpack and I have a 1510 and all my tech has to fit into those or I generally won't take it. Go ahead, Courtney. I have a laptop case is for like a, a 16 inch or 17 inch laptop, which is pretty big. And I carry a 14 inch laptop and an external screen in it. And then it has two pouches, two or three pouches in it. And the airlines look at that as a personal piece of luggage, like a purse or a laptop bag. They don't count it as your carry on. Uh, so um, then if I do need to bring more equipment, if it's not, if it's more of work and less vacation, I'll bring, you know, a spinner like this, uh, which is a carry on with a handle. And the nice thing is with that pop up handle, you can hang your heavy laptop bag 
over the drape it over the top of it and wheel it through the airport, which makes it a lot easier to travel with. And with those, uh, like that Amazon basics I just showed, um, it looks like a regular, you know, carry on luggage. So it doesn't scream, Hey, I'm full of expensive video equipment. So in the airport, it's less likely to be stolen, uh, and wheeled out by somebody that you don't know. Next question. From Todd Weezer of Fort Walton Beach, Florida. Is anyone using the new Mac Pro? If so, what functions? It seems like it was built on hope. Go ahead, Alex. You know, I, I, um, uh, I haven't used it yet, but I, I think that it's built for a specific group of people um, that, that are there. And so the, uh, there were a lot of us that were clamoring for, and, and I'm still looking at using it for this. Um, if, you know, I just ha- didn't need it just yet. But, but a lot of us clamoring for cards. Can we put cards somewhere? And, you know, so six cards and, and eight, eight channels of Thunderbolt are really valuable for a handful of people. I think Apple needed to serve that market. And so they have a studio line and basically it's a studio where you can insert cards and have more lanes. Um, you know, and, and, and Apple has been very clear that that's pretty much the, that's what it's designed for it. If you got the high-end studio and the high-end Mac Pro, they're almost identical in spec, except for the Mac Pro has the ability to add cards and the ability to, and, and you know, if, and for instance, I have a bunch of, just got some cards in the mail that are like, I have these, uh, I, I don't know if I can say that. Anyway, so so anyway, so I got I have some cards in the mail that I don't have anywhere to put them. <laughs> it's weird to have cards, but I don't, I don't like, okay, now I have to find a sonnet box for them. And so so I think that that's the, the real advantage of, um, of having that is not having a sonnet box and being able to do it, especially if you're doing a pro level um, event. So I think that, that that's going to be the... Um, um, I think that's what what Apple needed to serve. I think they have to build a computer like that. Um, I, I don't think that they, uh, if you need I/O to go in and out of that computer, if you're doing sound, uh, audio, you know, um, DIT, there's lots of you know, if you want to put drives in there, you know, big drives, in, you know, in there, um, like these 32 terabyte, you know, memory cards and so on and so forth. Those things need to be, you know, they need cards for those and. All of these four lanes seem like a lot, but four lanes you run. I, I run my studio has every single connection in my my Mac studio is full. <laughs> like you know, so so I'd love to put a pro in here. I don't I don't ha- I don't need it yet, but I'm definitely on my way. I think. Go ahead, Mitchell. Yeah, I think the pro is uh, you know a a device that's truly stuck in the twilight zone in a sense because. Um, I'm in a business, of, not business, I'm in a market to buy something like the Pro, but I'm also looking at the Mac Studio, and the price difference is huge, and I don't have a lot of cards yet that I want to plug into it. And meanwhile, there may be an M3 coming out. So what's your return on investment um, at you know going with the Pro? I think you need to have it net, have a need for it right now, and you have to be a big organization that says, yeah, I need to, I need to put those cards in there. If you don't need the I.O., you don't need the Pro. So it's it's just like if you need IO, they built the I the, the thing because it was so painful for us to do that. So if you don't need IO, um, but there's plenty of things where you do need IO. And so that's that's what this is built for. Yeah, it's IO, IO, it's off the pro I go. Exactly. Next question. From Dave Troutman, Edmonton, Canada, and on the uh, uh, office hours backend crew is the splintering of community on social platforms opening an opportunity for the return of RSS feeds. Go ahead, Alex. I think we're about to get to post content. So we're going to, I think that community is the next thing and it's not going to be content because the content is going to be 
free to make, you know, with AI and everything else. So you're going to get a blistering amount of content that no one wants to read. So I think that RS is probably not the solution for that. Next question. Jack Rupel, Breckenridge, Colorado. Did you make a visit to Blender 3D? They were mentioned in a technical paper with NVIDIA. Thoughts? Alex, do you have any thoughts on this? Yeah, I, I, it was a it was a uh, um, it was a pretty small booth, and it was full with a lot of people. We just it was just too hard to get through. So it was, they they didn't have a popular booth there. That a lot of people wanted to come by and say hi, and it just wasn't accessible for us because we couldn't shoot there. So, um, but they uh, but yeah, so we didn't get a lot of time with Blender. Next question. John Fisher, Oklahoma City, Oklahoma, is tossing the pile of old unlabeled HDMI cables I have accumulated over the years and standardizing them. Does the panel like a particular manufacturer or shop for new HDMI 2.1 cables? Go ahead, Courtney. I usually go to Monoprice for my HDMI cables. Uh, they've got some new ones that are uh, 8K uh, capable that are extremely cheap. Look, there's one for 99 cents. Uh, but uh, you can get a three-pack uh, for three-footers. Um, oh, that's a six-footer for 8K ultra-high speed for a reasonably cheap amount of money. Also, they make uh, one that has the very thin cable, so it doesn't put a lot of stress on your HDMI connectors, and they're good for throwing into your laptop bag because they don't take a, you know, a six-footer doesn't take up a lot of room. Uh, uh, they make some really thin ones, uh, thin and flexible ones, and some of them called Red Mirror, which have uh, um, compensation for the, you know, the lack of impedance in that very thin cable is not really the proper impedance, and so they have a little active chip that's in one side of the HDMI cable that corrects the impedance, balances the impedance to be correct uh, to give you a clean signal, uh, although they are unidirectional, so you got to make sure you plug the input into the input and the output into the output. Mitchell? Not all HDMI cables will work with all cameras. Believe it or not, there are some that just, they just refuse to work for whatever reason. And I would think that older cables are more likely to fall into that category. So new updated uh, cables are the way to go. Certainly ones that are rated at 2.1. Um, I think Sony has some cameras just, just don't like some of the uh, older cables. Uh, you can go to Gerald Undone to get more detail on that. And my personal uh, taste, Monoprice is a good source, but I, I love them when they're braided. I just like that tactile feel. Go ahead, Alex. I also tend to be a braided. <laughs> I don't know why. I really like the braided ones. I don't know. So I, the one that I have in my kit is braided. Um, most of my kit, most of my cables are braided because I like the, I don't know. I just like that. The I use the uni ones and also cable matters. Um, I have had a long string of failures buying HDMI cables, specifically from Monoprice. I buy almost every cable I have, almost almost every IP cable from uh, Monoprice because they're, they're really generally a good deal. Um, but the HDMI cables specifically, I've had enough failures that I won't buy them from Monoprice anymore. Next question. Eric Hers, Hartford, Connecticut. Alex mentioned multicast. What exactly is that? Is this IGMP or just streaming to multiple services? If IGMP, then what client is used? Go ahead, Alex. I'm not, I'm, I, I, I asked for it and I have engineers that do it. <laughs> so I will tell you that uh, my understanding of multicast really is, you know, when you have unicast, you have a server. Let me make that thicker. Hold on. 
So you have, if you think about the server here, um, Unicast is everybody who's coming in is getting their own stream, right? It's going, you get one, you get one, you get one. Um, with multicast, it is simply broadcasting this out. And as many people that can see that can see it. But what the key is it doesn't add load. It doesn't add significant load to the original server because it's just serving out from that network. It's being pulled um, by by everyone that's there. And so um, so the, the main thing is if you were streaming it individually to each person, um, you end up in a situation where you it puts a huge amount of pressure on the origin um, and on the edge. And so the multicast allows it to be something that is um, because it's doing multicast, it's simply serving that up to that to that um, position, and that allows it to the multicast. It allows multicast to um, serve many, 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 many people with only one server. Um, whereas you might melt something down if you were handing everybody individual packets as they came in. So, um, so it it is a. Uh, but I, I will admit that's my understanding of multicast because. Uh, the last time I set up my own multicast was probably 2011, <laughs> like 2000, you know, so I, um, I generally have engineers that, that put that together and, um, I did it so that I could know, knew how to do it. But, um, but I, I have other engineers that, that put that together. Next question. Paul Wallace from Austin, Texas is looking at a Microsoft.com security article. Is a pin better than an online password? Go ahead, Alex. Pass keys. Like that's that's the future. Like pass keys are the future. Like uh, we we can have a bunch of conversations about what what we should do right now. But I just I BNA or Apple now has pass keys, and so if you do app sign in with Apple, so I signed in with Apple on BNH to buy something, and it goes, would you like to use a pass key? And you're like, okay. And I just I just take a picture of a QR code. It looks at my face and says, yep, that's you. And boom, I'm through. And it is. It's amazing. <laughs> like I was just like, I could see the, I could, I could just see the future in front of me of I don't have to, to ever type another thing in again. Go ahead, Courtney. Uh, yeah, there is an explanation of why the pin is better than the password. I think because it's tied to the local device that it's sitting on. It's hashed, I think, with uh, some information from the local device that it's sitting on. But um, also, they're using uh, uh, personal, you know. Uh, uh, what do you call it? The you know fingerprint and your eye scan or your, your face scan for hello uh, on Windows uh, to uh, with a biological marker to to sign on with. That way you don't have to remember anything. You just have to be able to stick your face in the camera and or your fingerprint on the fingerprint scanner. And that's what I use on my Samsung phone all the time. I log in. I don't have to remember any of the passwords. It assigns the passwords and checks my uh, fingerprint and assigns a password and manages all that in the background. So that's the easy way for me is fingerprint ID. Next question. From Eric Herz, Hartford, Connecticut again. Wow, multicast sounds like a miracle. What is the downside? Go ahead, Alex. It's passing a lot of information over the network, um, and it's really hard to to manage that that information over the network. So you don't, you, you know, it, it for it would be easy to pass a lot of bad information over the network, and so IT IT folks tend to hate multicast. And so when you're working with an IT department, there's a lot of rules of engagement and a lot of resistance to multicast um, because of the way it manages the content. And so we usually have to, yeah, 
have a lot of conversation. You know, we it, it, it gets shot down a lot because of that. Um, so, so that's the, the the number one thing is IT resistance to it. Um, and so, if you were looking at a large company, um, they could serve this up to everybody internally with multicast. And some companies do. Arenas do it. I think the Golden One has an entire multicast system. But you really have to have an IT staff that understands it, knows how to control it, and manage it, and is willing to do that because um, there's a lot of liability connected to it. So that's that's the downside of multicast. A lot of upside though. Next question. David Brady, New York, New York. Zoomtopia is coming up in October. Is anyone planning to attend and what do we expect? Go ahead, Alex. Yeah, I believe it's near the beginning of October. I'm hoping to go at least. Um, what Usually me going means that I'll go down and have a dinner with folks, <laughs> but but I'll, I'll, I'll watch a lot of it. Um, you know, we'll, we may see stuff. I, I think we're probably going to see, usually this is a great place for the broadcast tools to roll out. I mean, we'll probably get a preview of at least a trajectory. We probably won't get a preview of Zimtopia, but a trajectory for the Zoom team uh, later this week. Um, we'll have them on on Friday, so it should be, should be good. Next question. Paul Wallace, Austin, Texas, has a synergy question. How can twit.tv learn from office hours model and how can the OH team learn from the twit.tv model? Go ahead, Alex. You know, we do it, Leo and I do this in a very different way. I don't know how much we can learn from each other. I learn a lot by being on the show with him and, and thinking about shows and how they work. Um, but I, I don't know if they're, I don't know if they would be able to do what we do and I don't know if we would be able to do what they do. Um, so I don't know how much crossover there is. Go ahead, Courtney. I was just going to say their operations a little bit different. They have all their mics open at one time, so anybody can chime in at any time. And we're we're a little more structured in our handoff of uh, you know of parceling out who's who's to speak next. And Leo does try to control that somewhat. When he'll he'll ask a question, there'll be three panelists. He'll give a name of a person who can you go first, and then you go next. You know point that out, but uh, they don't have the problem of having to unmute their mics and mute their mics uh, as they go from person to person. Well, and, and they also don't do not do uh, panels that have eight to 16 people in them. <laughs> so Leo's always like, four is enough. So, you know, so every once in a while, they used to do more than that, but Leo tries to keep it to four at a, at a, minimum, at a maximum almost all the time because of what you just said, you know, it's really hard to manage all of that. And, and so the, the, the large panel requires more discipline. Yes. Next question. Todd Weezer for Fort Walton, Fort Walton Beach, Florida. Has anyone tried Lemmy, a Reddit-like capability? Go ahead, Alex. I looked at the link up for it. It looks really interesting, uh, but it looks like a lot of work to get it set up. <laughs> so I was like, I don't know. You know, it, it could be, I think it could be something that is a very vertical solution for a handful of of uh, people who really care about that. But I, I, I think... Um, it's hard to replace Reddit. I think that'd be the challenge. Next question. From Paul Wallace with a follow-up question. Expanding on my earlier question about shows, conferences, can office hours cover that are outside of the normal trade shows like CES, NAM, SIGGRAPH, et cetera? Alex? We're definitely interested in it. If we had enough people interested in it, I, I'm interested in going to any conference where there's enough people to reach critical mass. What we found is that as we step outside of the normal ones for our community, that are the number of volunteers drops precipitously. And so it just really didn't, you know, we, we've experimented with, oh, why don't we do this one? And people get interested in it, but we just don't get enough people. There's not enough groundswell. So, so I think that um, that's the real challenge is to, um, is that I just don't think right now we can do that. What we may do is do some 
that are smaller. Like we did a soccer game, which was really great. I got to meet new people and see new, see new uh, members. And we did one on generative AI that we did a little while ago. And so those are really fun. Um, they really have to be in San Francisco because I can't travel out for those, um, for those ones. And even those are pretty hard for me to do on a daily, on a regular basis. So, um, so I think that it's just a matter of getting the groundswell of people willing to do it. And we just haven't seen that kind of uptick for things that are not in our vertical. Go ahead, Mitchell. I see that uh, Dave Troutman agrees with me. Uh, the Oshkosh uh, air show would be cool. And if they, uh, when they have it, the gaff tape world uh, would be an excellent event to go to. Well, the one that I am looking at pretty seriously is Concrete World. Concrete World, I would love to cover. There's lots of, lots of things to look at. World cool. of Concrete. There we go. That'll be probably. Yeah, I, I put that up because it is, I think it's the biggest convention in Vegas every year, and they're on their 50th year, the world of concrete. What could go wrong? I guess why it's in Vegas, you know, because there's a lot of people that need to sleep with the fish. A lot of rebar. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Exactly. So, yeah. Well, that's it for another Saturday. We covered 74,000 miles, 120,000 kilometers. And that's more than 591 million bananas for scale. I'd like to thank the panel and our crew and the producers who, without your questions, we wouldn't have we wouldn't have had anything to talk about today. It would have been a lot shorter show. And with that, let's head to after hours. <laughs> 